Shio Nagad. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Origin Story Podcast, where once a month I ask an artist I respect to introduce me to a piece of work or an artist they love. This month, poet Gladys Cardiff introduces me to Joseph Bruchak's novel, Chanu. Gladys is a member of the Eastern Band of the Cherokee Indian. She was born in Browning, Montana, and grew up in Seattle, Washington. Her mother was of Irish and Welsh descent, and her father was a member of the Eastern Band of the Cherokee Indians. Gardiff received her MFA from the University of Washington, where she studied with the poet Theodore Rothke, and a PhD in literature from Western Michigan University. Her poetry has been collected in To Frighten a Storm, winner of the Washington State Governor's First Book Award, and A Bear Unpainted Table. Her poems have been anthologized in From the Belly of the Shark, Carries of the Dreamwheel, Songs from This Earth, Harper's Anthology of 20th Century Native American Poetry, and of course, most recently, in the collection, When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through, an anthology I highly, highly recommend. Uh, Gladys is also my aunt. Uh, She is my father's sister, and so this is a very special episode. We're probably... We probably haven't earned the, earned the right to do a very special episode just yet, but uh, I'm glad we did. Uh, this is a very, very long podcast. I spent a lot of time thinking and looking at uh, what places to edit it, and at some point I may do an hour-long edited version, but I wanted to get this one out uh, in its entirety. Uh, feel free to uh, move forward. Uh, we talk a lot about Gladys's work. We read several of her poems. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation on a professional level, obviously. Uh, Gladys is an, is an incredibly talented poet and a craftsperson, and it's, uh, it was great on that level. But on a personal level, uh, it was wonderful to be able to have this conversation with my aunt. This podcast is so late getting out, I shan't delay it any further. So please enjoy my conversation with the poet and my aunt, Gladys Cardiff. Uh, Gladys Cardiff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for Thank being you. here. Oh, it's just a pleasure. A pleasure. Uh, I, I will have already introduced you and uh, sung your accolades and, and let everyone know that you are actually my aunt. We want to be open and honest with our nepotism here, you know. <laughs> That's right. Um, That's right. But if someone someone were going to ask you at a at a party or whatever, you know, where you met somebody, you know, hey, you know, are you retired now? What did you do? How do you how do you answer that? Um, I'm retired now and I'm loving it. Um, I, every day is full. Um, I'm still writing. I um, uh, have quite a few friends here, and we go walking a lot, and uh, I'm in. In the Seattle Public Library, where they have a poetry appreciation group. <clears throat> so uh, I've been involved in that. It's been going for 20 years. Kind of amazing. That's impressive. <laughs> and uh, then I have a small writing group that um, I belong to. Um, and we, we share poems. And um, we're, all, we're all writers. So... Um, it's, it's been great. I'm close to my kids now and that's huge. So, you know, we do a lot together too. Cool. Lots of family here. Yeah. I love that. Uh, 
and I want to come back to the writing group thing, but let's let's talk about uh, t- let's talk about where you grew up, uh, what that experience was like. Uh, I believe you're a member of a, a federally recognized Native American tribe. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about that as as well, and then I want to talk about uh, when poetry first came to you. Okay, well, um, I grew up. Uh, I was born in Browning, Montana. And that's just a little tiny town up near the Canadian border, <clears throat> quite remote. Um, it was on, uh, my my dad was working for the BIA uh, as a principal of the school. Uh, and it was a boarding school and for the Blackfeet um, tribe. So Browning, Montana. And um, at that point in his career, when I was born, I was the uh, fourth child. So uh, the family was growing and he could see that there was no way that he was going to advance in the BIA, that um, he had seen too many people that were non-native, you know, promoted over himself. So Mm. he decided it was time to leave the BIA and come to Seattle and this was in 1942. So there was, you know, a lot of military uh, work going on, airplanes at Boeing and so forth. So he um, got a job at Boeing as a airplane inspector. And we were, we lived in a very good um, upper middle class neighborhood called Laurelhurst. And uh, because we had good schools there. And so um, my parents and well, the whole family, we, we made a lot of sacrifices in order to stay in that neighborhood. Um, we were the only Indian family in the neighborhood. And while I didn't look obviously native, my uh, brother and sisters did. And so um, there was there was a bit of, um, you know, occasionally some uncomfortable moments, but we were pretty, we were pretty tight family. So we would just joke about them, you know, um, to each other. And we joined the campfire girls, which was hilarious, you know, <laughs> and saying, whoa, hello, along with everybody else. <laughs> Earn beads for our garments, you know, it was, and we would just kind of laugh about it. But kind of roll your um, eyes. But we had changed our name from Owl to Harris uh, once we got in uh, the C- in Seattle and left Browning, and that was my was dad. That talk- just- was that talked about? Did hmm? y'all discuss that, or did? No, How- we were little. I mean, I was a baby. I was. I came here in a clothes basket. Okay. So, <laughs> so no, there was no discussion. That was between. It was my parents' choice, but my dad's in particular um he thought the owl name would be too easy for us to be kidded about in school and while he had had really quite wonderful experiences he had also had it was he was always the other in other groups you know so uh he didn't want he didn't want us to have to be worried about that or do you have that you know experience and um, he picked in Harris, which was his mother's um, uh, married name, 
um, a, a second marriage. It was a family name for on the maternal side. So it wasn't completely unrelated to family. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, we, I grew up in Laurelhurst. And in Laurelhurst, um, if you go out on one of the streets, you can look straight up. And there's the University of Washington on the very top of the hill. And I knew from grade school on that I wanted to go there. It was, I mean, it was just absolutely a done deal, you know, that place on the hill. <laughs> yeah. So the shining castle on the hill, you know, it sounds like something from the pioneers, but. Exactly. The beacon yeah. coming down. <laughs> so um, I did. I went to the University of Washington, did my undergraduate work there. Uh, in high school, I started getting interested in writing. I was also studying piano. And um, when I went to the university, I signed up also for piano lessons at the university with one of the professors there that my mom knew. And, you know, I was not bad at the piano. My mom was a musician and a composer. And uh, had uh, taught at Cornish. So, you know, she was all for me going ahead with, you know, trying to make a life out of piano playing. That's but pretty my, great because a lot of, yeah, yeah, you know, a lot know. of people get resistance. A lot of children get resistance when they go into the arts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She was all for it. I mean, both parents were all for every choice that I made. So <laughs> I was a good girl, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> But with the, I loved playing the piano, uh, and it was so expressive. And but my hands are quite small, and there was no way that I could ever be like a performance piano player. And um, and I also got stage fright really easily then. So uh, and I was also writing poetry and fiction in high school, and getting encouragement there. So. Um, I had, this was my life-changing moment in many ways. My mom used to take me to concerts and things with her. She was very interested in exposing me to, you know, art and music. And So she took me to um, a reading by Theodore Retke. And he was uh, teaching at the University of Washington. And I don't know if you're familiar with his poetry, but He's, he was very well known and, and um, a, a fabulous, fabulous teacher and had already established his reputation as a you know, wonderful teacher of um, creative writing. So I went to hear him read and it was so fabulous. I mean, I just I was just in awe. And he was this big bearish man and not real comfortable in his own body, but he had a voice like Dylan Thomas. You know, he, he could read absolutely beautifully. And he clearly just loved poetry and loved what he was doing. And uh, he read several poems by other poets that he admired. That's how he would always start his reading. Oh, he I read, love that. Yeah, yeah. He read Louise Bogan was one that we studied a lot, and I, I learned to love her, too. She's one of the best lyricists there ever was. And um, 
so I, you know, I, I told my mom, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to study with him. <clears throat> and she says, well, you, you know, go sign up for his class. And I went to sign up for his class and they said, well, you're a freshman, you know? And I said, well, I am a freshman, but I want to take the class. And, um, they said, well, you know, it's a very popular class and there aren't very many seats. You know, it was like limited to 15, 16 students. They said, we usually take, you know, the seniors and the juniors um, and into that class. And I said, well, I want to take the class. <laughs> and so they said, well, everyone that, you know, try, you know, tries to get in the class has to send some poems to him. And so... I, I sent the poems that I had, and um, you know, one of them was about a storm, crashing winds, crashing waves, thunder booming in the caves. You know, it was, but it was full of um, sort of natural imagery and and very rhythmic, and um, and so then I also went and talked to the the dean of the department. And I just said, you know, I, I really want to get it in this class. <laughs> so it was like I really, I I didn't knew I know I had it, but Dad had always talked about gumption, you know, having gumption. And I thought, well, you know what? This is one time when I'm going to have some gumption. <laughs> and sure enough, I got in the class, and there were only two freshmen in the class. And then I stayed with him for a full year and a quarter, and then he. Um, he died in an accident. So, oh, wow. but it was, it was, he was so great as an instructor. I mean, as a, um, he, I mean, I, I just can't say enough. And he was very um, traditional in the way he brought us up as creative writers. You know, we, the first quarter, we, um, talked about poetry and then we started writing poetry and we uh, started with the iambic tetrameter and for the whole quarter that's all we wrote and that's and he would bring in all these different ones and we would do close readings of them and um and then we always had to memorize a fairly long poem and you know um give it to we you know do it uh, back to the classroom and so all you know one whole semester of one kind of um, meter um, is it, you get it you get so you can hear it then you know you get so you hear it in a way that you wouldn't if you were just dipping in and dipping out you know and I mean I still remember poems that I remember you know that I memorized uh, at that time and then the next quarter was iambic pentameter. <laughs> Same thing. And memorized, I memorized some Shakespeare in blank verse, you know. And, um, and again, the close reading and him talking about his own work, but just really careful reading so that you begin to understand and really love language, you know. And I mean, it was... It was a love affair with language as much as it was with form or anything. It was just seeing what you could do. 
and um, things that you had never imagined possible, you know. And then for the spring quarter, we got to write free verse. <laughs> so um, quite specific. And and it did me worlds of good because uh, form has never been an issue. I haven't been afraid of form ever because of that. You know, it was like, I can hear it. I understand why we have these different things like a villanelle or Justina or, um, you know, the hymn, hymn uh, uh, meter, hymnal meter. Um, it, you know, it just all makes sense to me in a way that is not scary. So I think. Would you elaborate a little bit on that? What do you, what do you mean by it made sense to you? About what? Would you elaborate a little bit on what it, what you meant by it made sense to you, the forms, the various forms? like uh, Because you can see what you can do with certain forms. You know, you see what, how they, first of all, might limit what you, you know, they make you come to the end of that line. <clears throat> or if you're going to enjam it onto the next line, you you have to be very considerate about how you want that. Do you want the heavy stress on the end uh, or do you want it bold, the bold stress to begin at the next line? So, you know, you're, you're listening to it as you're um, following the, you know, the requirements of the form. And you learn like in a sonnet, a sonnet is basically an argument. The first six lines are stating a case and, the, the last lines are um, giving an answer to it. So, or with the villanelle, where you have these repeating lines that go down, those that unfolds down the page in a kind of a roll, you know, it sort of spirals down the page. And so there's certain poems that that's perfect for. Um, so, um, and that kind of narrative poem, we speak in iambic pentameter. That's our natural speech meter or measure. And so that's the narrative poems where you get blank verse and you can have things like Shakespeare, <laughs> you know, um, or somebody writing a long poem <clears throat> that's more telling a story than it is a conversation between just two people or you and whoever your lyric is addressing. Right. So you saw so, the forms as not giving you like a stricture in an uncomfortable way, but giving you something to play with is what it sounds like. Yes, it's giving you a frame. Uh, and it, um, it is a stricture in some ways. And that stricture forces you to um, find a way to give that thought in a, in a denser, more compact way. So there's no word packages like you can have in fiction. You know, you can put in a lot of prepositions and phrases and stuff and the word package that aren't working very hard. But in poetry, not so much. So, um, and sometimes that being forced to find a rhyme just opens up whole new worlds. You know, that you find a word that... Um, makes sense to you in a way that just any word that you came upon wouldn't. So uh, form is really your friend. <laughs> uh, 
I'm hesitant to ask this question because I think it'll get us ahead, but I want to ask it anyways. What does what comes first for you? Uh, does the form come with the idea or does the idea come and then what form would best represent that idea or is it something completely different? Oh, I think the, the form comes second. Absolutely. That um, when you're talking about writing poetry, there's there's not a whole lot of rules, but one of them is you're thinking of, about things in terms of a line, not in terms of a whole sentence, certainly not in terms of a paragraph. So you're building lines to tell what your story is. So that's already something, you know. And uh, when you first start writing poetry, um, you shouldn't be worried about form at all. It is, you, you're writing you're writing your whatever has triggered your imagination or that you're really interested in you're trying to get that down on the page in some way and when you do you could write it the whole thing out and then come back and trim and trim for me it was always you write it but you're thinking and envisioning what you're trying to do in a way and so you, when you decide to change the line a couple of times to end it or enjam it or to have line after line that are just all one declarative, you've already picked your meter. You've picked your measure here. So, you know, the more you keep working with it, it will, it will sort of make, you know, uh, suggestions to you about what form would work best. So, um, and it, it, the the measure or the syllables are the the real energy of the word, right? They they it's it makes the word animate in a way. So, um, if you think of it that way, uh, those words are coming out of your inspiration, but also because there's a natural flow of the way you're mind is working i don't know that sounds like a lot of froth you know (laughs) (laughs) no it doesn't that makes a lot of sense well how did his death uh affect you because you were young and uh, newly passionate about this subject and he was the teacher and what was that had to be tough we were all in mourning i mean really truly it was it was my first probably really deepest grief and um so we just continued on. There were other wonderful professors, and uh, we would see each other in other classes. And so, you know, I, I just continued to take verse writing, they called it, um, and all the way through undergraduate until I got married. And then uh, then that came to a close. Well, tell me about that. Why did that come to, to a close? How did well when when I got married, then basically I had to quit school, and uh, I was putting my husband through dental school. So I was working, and he was going to dental school. And we had Dawn right away, so I was a, a mother, and you know, working full time, and so going to school was just not a possibility. So for a long time. Uh, I would only write late at night, you know, I'd write, uh, everybody would be in bed and, you know, the housework would be done and it'd be quiet. And so I would, I would continue to write late at night. 
And, uh, you know, everywhere I've gone to study, there's always been people that appear that are helpers for you. And so after um, Theodore Recchi died, it was Nelson Bentley who was also on the, you know, faculty there. And um, and then his wife was a poet too, so I would I kept in touch with them, and I would actually come back to the university periodically because they had these student readings, and Nelson was always saying, "Come on, come on, bring whatever you're writing, and come on and read it," and and so I did. So it kept, that kept me going, and I would kept being amongst the peoples, you know, that were writing and their own little community there and um then i took classes from him when i could um and then his wife beth and i became very best friends <laughs> so uh and she would have these these um small groups of uh women that would come to her home and we would talk about poetry and um read there so i always found a way to do it but it wasn't like that wonderful formalized, you know, thing that I was getting with Retke. Did you ever think for a moment that, you know, okay, I'm done with this now. That was for that part of my life. And now I'm focusing on. I, I never could. No. I love that. Yeah. I, I just couldn't. It was like, I'll make it, you know, it will be, it's, it won't be perfect, but I'm going to be continue to write. And I did. And soon as I got divorced, <laughs> I went back to school and uh, finished up my master's. And then, um, and that's where I learned about the brand new program, PhD program that they had at uh, Western um, in Mich Michigan. So Western was, and they were, I think maybe there were only three other universities that came up with the plan for creative writing PhD. Oh well. For so you could write in your own, you know, poetry or fiction or memoir, and um, you would take all the workshops that were available and required, and then at the same time, you were also taking everything you would need for a PhD in English. So it was where you had more, more of a load. But you were doing what you absolutely love to do. So it was like we just, you know, we had our own little group, you know, and we supported each other. And <clears throat> so it was it was just absolutely fabulous. It sounds and like heaven. It was heaven. We were writing all the time. And as soon as you'd been there long enough, then you were just automatically became a TA. So, because you had already, they knew what you, they knew what you could do. And most of us, you know, well, not, well, many of us were lucky enough to become TAs. And so then we were actually getting teaching experience. Did you enjoy teaching, the, doing the TA duties that make you want to continue? And did you um, like it? I, were you good at it? Yeah, I felt really privileged to do it, you know. And so I worked really hard at it. I, um, I will say I worked hard at it. I, I wasn't a natural teacher at all. Uh, when I went to um, teach at um, Oakland, that was the first time when I was teaching 
all sorts of different classes, not poetry, which I was fairly comfortable with, but ethnic literature and literature of Native American, the survey class for ethnic studies. And so it was, you know, an entirely different and much more rigorous, <laughs> you know, demand. And uh, I would have sometimes 50 students in a classroom. You know, you would be like an atrium and you were down there and they were all sitting around you like, you know, watching the lions come out to keep you alive. <laughs> I believe <laughs> so, you. Yeah. So, um, I, I, and basically um, what happens for me and for just so many writers that I know is once you start teaching, you stop writing. And that's pretty much what happened. You know, I, there was, there were so many demands with teaching. And if you, if you really want to be a good teacher, um, you know, you, you, you're spending all of your time really doing that. Right. So, yeah. Did you notice so, that as it was happening? I, yeah. I tried to write while it was going on and I wrote a few things, but um, they weren't very good. And, um, yes, I did notice it considerably, actually. Uh, I was still considered one of the creative writing, you know, teachers, of course. So I had workshops. I wasn't completely divorced from poetry and talking about poetry and marveling of what can be done. And But doing my own writing, I know, you know, it, it wasn't, it just didn't work for me and over and over again I, I heard people you know other people say the same thing some just gave up writing completely I would write on my own but it was never I never felt like I was into it in the kind of way that I had been before I was wondering okay. if we could we could talk a little bit about to frighten the storm and how that came about and then maybe yes. we could look at a couple of those poems um yeah, hi, that came about, again, com from coming from the University of Washington and the influence of Retke. And um, I, uh, there was, there was um, um, one uh, sort of, sort of a patron of young poets, you know, and I'm trying to remember his name. It's horrible. I can't think of it. But he... Um, he heard my name from something, and he, he I think that the fact that I was Native American was part of it. You know, it was just at the time that people were beginning to be interested in Native American writers, just at the edge of that. And um, so he uh, asked me to send a poem to Inscape magazine, which I did, and they took it. Um, How did that feel? It was fabulous, you know. It was like I'm in a real magazine, you know. Um, and then, um, then I was recommended to go ahead and and try at Copper Canyon, which I had no idea was it, it was. It's one of the respected, really respected literary journals. It was then, and it still is. But I didn't know, you know. Right. <laughs> So um, I sent them some poems, and they wrote back, and they said they would like to see a chapbook if, if, if I could 
you know, put together a chapbook. So that became To Frighten the Storm. That's awesome. Well, do you mind yeah. looking at a poem or two from there? Not at all. Yeah, let's do it. I, I haven't looked at these poems for a long time, so it was kind of interesting. I'm, I would love for you to elaborate on that as, as, as we talk about them. Like, what is, is it to look at work that, you know, you've done in the past and, and how does that feel? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, and I had just, I had realized this with the, the manuscript that I'm writing now too. It, I, there are themes that I was totally involved in at that time that have carried on. And here at the age of 80, they're still, part of my, you know, um, world, the, the world of my writing interests, I guess. So I think that's really interesting. There are certain images that always, you know, um, are interesting and grab me. Many of them are natural images, you know, things like the weather or certainly the water is big. We used to you know, we, I've grown up by water. We spend a lot of time swimming. We spend a lot of time uh, later on on boats. Um, so the sort of the place, a, a place will have a really important. Um, the, um, the other thing is, is, has to do with being Native American and having that kind of a background um, and this was it, my my writing career completely follows sort of the interest in Native American writing that, you know, it was, it was right at the cusp when people were beginning to think that was pretty nice and pretty exotic, you know, and we're, we're kind of interested and we want to know the secrets, you know, that sort of thing. Right. Um, and... Uh, that was the time when Native writers were just beginning to talk to each other, you know. And so there was beginning to be a, a sense of a community. Um, and that's when the first anthologies started to come out. And, uh, you know, anthologies, Native American writers only. And I think uh, in, in, in along these lines, see chance that I got had of going to um, returning the gift, which was this huge conference of only Native American writers. It was the first one that ever has been held, I think, in the U.S. And Joseph Bruchak and um, Gary Hobson from Oklahoma University, they just worked there so hard with some of their uh, other people to get all of these names, 300 people showed up that were oh, wow. all Native Americans. Most of us, they were able to find money for our airplane tickets to go there. Otherwise, I never could have afforded to go, and many others like me. And um, there were writers from all over the country. Leslie Silco was just beginning her career, and she gave the, the opening grand speech. And oh, wow. before she spoke, there were two Native women from, I think they were the Tlingit that came, and they wanted to do, uh, uh, you know, they were Inuit, because they wanted to do 
the kind of thing that they would do in an igloo in the winter, you know, a kind of a winter storytelling thing where the two of them sort of compete with each other to tell a story. And there's a lot of sort of friendly competition, you know, and it was just amazing to see. That sounds incredible. Yeah. And um, you name them, they were there. James Welch. Um, uh, oh, my mind is just <laughs> quite blank. They were, everyone was there. Yeah. Gary Hobson, of course. Um, let's say Silco, uh, Wendy Rose. Uh, every, everyone that's in the uh, first Norton anthology about was in there. So it, it yeah, it was, and I, I think, you know, it's due. You guys are due now. There's enough of you that you could do the same thing and have a Returning the Gift uh, conference um, again. It would be marvelous. Well, I think that, um, I think I think you're right. I think we are due, and I think we're kind of creating that. I think IAI is helping with that, but also last summer's James Welch Literary, Native Literary Festival Yes. felt like that for me. Did it, like, yes. You know, Just maybe not, it was not quite as large, but there were so many great Native writers there. Yeah. Um, and now my, my, my mind will grow blank. But like three of my mentors from school were there on a panel mm -hmm. together at the same time, and that was incredible. And <laughs> Yeah, um, it is. I mean, to, to see yourself uh, among a group rather than this solitary writer off, you know, um, and everyone working on the same kind of issues and problems and, um, you know, and, and being able to talk frankly with each other. Um, and, you know, in Chanu's uh, introduction by Bruchak, he says, um, you know, I know I've made mistakes um, and I've tried to correct them. And we all know that, you know, that um, we had not, not a clue really about um, the protocols of using the material that we were using. I was using James Mooney, that, and I still, I think James Mooney was a huge boon to the Cherokee, really, really um, integral in many, many ways, but he was also very problematic. And for, you know, contemporary um, writers that are, uh, from Cherokee, um, he's he's you know he's kind of out of style. Number one, but his methods were so you know problematic that they 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 just sort of separate themselves from that from him. Would you tell the audience um, those that don't know just very very briefly who James Mooney was? Well, James Mooney was an, just an early ethnographer that. Um, uh, dead field work. This is he came out of the Boaz era of anthropology, where instead of just going in and then running away and writing in your little attic, you went and you were amongst the people. You know, you uh, tried to get some sense of what the community was like and um, how stories were told within the community and the stories that were told and. Um, Mooney was, he, he considered himself, and I think he truly did consider himself as a friend of the Cherokee, that because he, um, you know, could write and document these stories and, and 
put them into some place safe, like the Smithsonian, that he was uh, really integral to preservation. And I mean, um, our relative Suet was one of the informers that talked to him. So there was a family, I had a sense of at least there was some sort of family connection that this was a story that Suyate, for instance, loved the rabbit stories. You know, he was, that was his, he loved the animal stories. Um, Swimmer told other kinds of stories. And right. so, um, so I didn't feel like I was making things up, but of course, I was making assumptions from the viewpoint that I have, which is not really of somebody of the reservation or that's been brought up, you know, um, by generation by generation, just just the way we are, you know. Right, people yeah. that, so, and my language is English, you know, and I love it. I love English as a language, and um, I'm very protective of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I wish I had the other language, but that I don't, you know. And knowing the language, did Henry it, speak? Does Henry speak the language? He was, he was, of course, he was um, a fluent speaker. Uh, but every time he was moved further west, he got further away from the language. Yeah. And um, he, of course, he was teaching in a boarding school where they didn't want the professors, you know, teach, teaching in their language. Right. And that was one of the great sorrows for him when he got to Seattle. He did try and find someone to speak Cherokee with. <clears throat> and he only found one woman and she lived in West Seattle, which was very far away at that time. That was like driving to the country. And, uh, and she was also um, Western Cherokee. So, you know, a different dialect. It just, it just didn't, it didn't work. work out. Yeah. No. So he, he lost it completely. Yeah. I mean, he'd go back and he could understand. He could hear it and understand what was being said, but being able to speak it back. No, Whole he couldn't. Thing. Yeah. yeah. Let's, read, let's read one of your poems. Okay. Which uh, one? Shall we do combing? Sure. And I had it all teed up on my book, and now I've lost the page. <laughs> Give me just a second. You want me to read it, or you want to read it? That'd be great. Either way. Good <clears throat> choice. Okay, I'll read this one. Cool. Um, should I tell you a little bit about it before? Or? Please. I mean, if you think it needs set up before, yes. Or if you want to ex- talk about it afterward, your choice on that, too. Well, when I give readings, I always talk about the poem a little bit. Cool. So that um, people have, they're not coming into a completely cold turkey. <laughs> so I think I, li- I think I would like that as a listener as well, actually. Okay, so this is me uh, talking in the poem, and I'm, um, I had spent the day uh, with uh, taking care of my kids, and one of the things I'd been doing was combing Diana's red hair. Uh, and it was very curly, and she uh, she always sat really quietly while I combed her hair, which was amazing because not other times. And then my mom had called, and I was to what are you doing? And I said, well, right now I'm combing Diana's hair. And she says, oh, I used to comb my grandmother's hair. And I said, really? And so she told me the story about combing her grandmother's hair. 
And so it was just a conversation. And then um, everybody was at the bed and I was up doing my late night writing and and I thought, you know, this was all still fresh in my mind. So I thought, well, okay, I'll just get some of it down. And so I started to write and it was like, um, I have to say, it felt like a holy moment, you know, where your head is down, your head is bowed, and you're thinking about these loved ones. And so that's the mindset that I had when I started writing it. And this is the only poem I have ever written in all my time that I wrote and left. I didn't revise it at all. Oh, it wow. came the way it is. It came out in three beat lines. So uh, it, 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 we were, this is like three generations we're talking about. I mean, everything just fell into place. So it was uh, like one of those given poems. Yeah. But, you know, I have to say that a given poem, I, I had been preparing for, and that, this will happen to other writers. You've been preparing by all the writing that you've done before. You know, that um, you already have some of those things built in that, you know, that make your choices not so intentional, but they're there, you know. Mm -hmm. So everybody should write all the time. <laughs> Amen to that. Combing. Bending, I bow my head and lay my hands upon her hair. Combing. And think how women do this for each other. My daughter's hair curls against the comb, wet and fragrant orange pairings. Her face downcast is quiet for one so young. I take her place. Beneath my mother's hands, I feel the braids drawn up tight as piano wires and singing, vinegar rinsed. Sitting before the oven, I hear the orange coils tick the early hour before school. She combed her grandmother Matilda's hair using a comb made out of bone. Matilda rocked her oakwood chair, her face downcast, intent on tearing rags and strips to braid a cotton rug from bits of orange and brown. A simple act preparing hair, something women do for each other, plating the generations. That's so lovely. I love that. Now, this poem has a if this poem was the first, you know, child I sent out into the world here, really, and it has been picked up. It, I don't know how many times it's been published. It's provided me with like $100 every now and then throughout my lifetime for fees. It's been published in Turkish. Uh, it's been published in England. Um, it's been published in an SAT exam. <laughs> it's really? Several, yeah. That's cool. It's been in numerous um, uh, school books. So, uh, you know, I used to get notes all the time from students saying, would you tell me what your poem means? 
So outstanding. It's, you know, yeah, it's just gone. It's done its own thing, and it's out there, and um, uh, it's you know kind of a little miracle for me. Yeah. It's 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 lovely and amazing, and reminds me of. Um, you were talking about Kelly Joe Ford, a Cherokee writer earlier, and it reminds me of the themes in her book, Crooked Hallelujah, and just, you know, women in general, but Cherokee women in general. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, I think it's, uh, it's lovely. Yeah. Is it interesting or funny to you how, you know, one poem will take off and have legs and another poem that you know that this one does sound like a special occasion because it sounds like the muse just beamed it into you, but how another poem that, you know, just as good, you know, from your point of view, it really worked and maybe won't have the legs that another one has. Oh yeah. I think that that is true. Some poems seem to just come easier. They've been you know, somehow in some way been mulled around in your mind or, um, your the emotional climate is you know similar in some way, or um, and the ones that are that are giving you trouble are usually worth the trouble. You know, trying to figure out what's what's going on, they're just not going to come that easily. And frankly, I would, would be worried about any poem that came as easily as this did. It was it because you can get. You know, you can get a poem that seems so really good, and the next morning you look at it and you think, "Oh my god!" <laughs> I <laughs> believe you. <laughs> yeah. How long? How long do you? Um, and you can answer this now for your working now, or for when you were in grad school, or doing the PhD, or but like how long do you work a poem till you feel like it's like what is what is like an average length, or or what is a standard, or I'm sure you work on it until you feel that it's done, but how long does that take? So, you know, um, usually by the time I sit down, I've, I've had it's something going on in my mind, a trigger of some sort that is sort of like the core anyway, or not, maybe not the core, but the image and mood that, that I want to work with, you know, that I, that's come to me and I need to do it. So, um, it usually, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it would take maybe a couple of weeks, I would say is an average. Okay. Um, and if it takes too much longer than that, then it, then it is a little suspect for me. If I, if I don't feel like I'm making some moves, bringing it to where it needs to go or wants to go, then, then I, I think I'm on, I'm just on the wrong wave and I'll put it aside. Okay. I, I feel like I want to ask my process questions now, uh, even though I, I want to read some more poetry also. Uh, again, so either back then or with your practice now, uh, do you have like a regular, okay, 10 o'clock, I'm at the desk. And I am working for a certain hour or a certain time period, or do you mull in your head until like a poem is ready for you to sit down with a pencil or pen, or, or and do you use a pencil or pen, or do you use a computer? Like, how do you? Right. Well, um, I, I, you know, I was told, and I think even Ricky told told us this that if if you can, you want to find a place that you that that it's where you're going and you're sitting down and you're 
you're um, thinking and writing about poetry. Uh, I mean, you can do it also on a trip or something, of course, but to get in the habit of thinking of yourself as a writer. And, and so it was a dining room table for me almost, you know, forever. And then um, now I've got a, a, a ex, extra bedroom, very small, but, you know, I have a desk and my cute, my, um, Printer is here. All the paper I need. I have books right around the corner, and you know uh, my bookcases. Uh, and so it it's it is a workspace, you know, and it's one that I go happily to. I don't feel if I'm not writing or if, if it's not coming, I don't feel like I have to force it at all. It's just you know there's something else that my mind needs to take care of and do that and then come back when you're try again. Did so, you always have I'm sorry, keep going. No, you go ahead. Well, I'm just um pen or pencil or I used to always start with man writing and by hand on a legal pad. And I still use that a lot. But I also have gotten to the point where I'm comfortable writing on the computer. You know, I'm not afraid to write on the computer um uh, and that it's going to have to stay that way. You know, I, I mess around a lot on the computer and <laughs> I got so, yeah. So it's, it, it can be both. Yeah. I was going to ask, did you learn that kind of spirit of it's okay if it's not coming right now or patience? Is that something you learned over the years doing it? Or did you have that immediately? Cause I know, I know a lot of younger writers have, um, I don't know, it's not panic is not the right word, but frustration mm -hmm. or. Yeah, I um, know. I've had, I've, I've had that kind of experience um, where you feel like you sort of have to write on demand, and so, especially for classes and stuff, workshops. And, um, but I, I, uh, I say with time that goes away. And you go, once you're here and this is where you are, you're writing, it's just then you, your next problem will be that you'll find yourself four hours later with a really sore shoulder, <laughs> having shoulder problems. Um, but you've been, you so, you just get so absorbed really um, that time, you know, time just passes without you having any idea until you, either your shoulder hurts or your stomach growls or something. Right. So, but I think for, I mean, it depends on your personality too, because I've always been able to um, sort of settle myself down and, and concentrate on something. Um, and I'm be aware of when I'm getting distracted. And, you know, so if, if somebody you talk to is having that problem, I'm a great believer in Headspace. I don't know if you know Headspace or not, but the app. Yeah, the app. Yeah, I use a. I've, I've used Headspace before. I use Calm now, but I've I yeah. like Headspace also. Yeah, I mean Headspace particularly. It has one called Focus, and it's just you get used to just sort of moving from thing to thing to thing. Um, it's not like uh, you know I have to tear my way through <laughs> this. And, um, and it's okay if you get distracted, you take care of that and then you come back and continue. 
So, but I do think you train yourself. Yeah, I do. Um, probably all those nights when I was the only one up and working at a uh, table completely and just, you know, nobody around to um, get my attention, no phones ringing. I imagine that was good training in some ways. So, yeah. I have trouble working late at night now. I used to be able to do that, and now I'm. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I was young, young then. Now <laughs> <Yeah>. it's young. <laughs> do you want to read another one from uh, sure. from Fright the Storm? I uh, you read one. What do you want? Do you want to read? Uh... Well, you pick between the Leech Place and Owl and Rooster because those are the two I kind of had highlighted for the next for the next two, and see what. Um, okay. Well, I'm. Um, See if you have a preference. Um, well, I guess maybe just as a kind of um, exercise for me, the leech place, because this brings us back to the big concern that I have, which is to do with the right of using certain material and... Um, and, and not having spent time in, in, among the people to really understand all of the illusions or the context for it and so forth. So the, le the Leech Place, I'll let you pick the poem, but the Leech Place comes out of Mooney. It's information I got from Mooney. I found it utterly, utterly fascinating. Um, and there is a Leech Place. There's, that's a, there's an actual place um but the the um and i think i think commentary from mooney has quite a bit of commentary and information um but i and somehow the story of, of this very young risk risk-taking young native person um taking the leech place on you know <laughs> That, that just came, and so I wrote it down. So now I would say, um, like Bouchak, I'm not sure how I feel about that poem anymore. Oh, that's you know, really interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, I you know, I can remember exactly what it meant to me at the time. Um, but now in retrospect, uh, you know, I, I'm not confident that it's my story to tell that is um that's fascinating and i think it's a continual issue for native yeah, writers it is it's we're getting we're getting closer i think to coming up with some answers but um when i look back at my publication history and very i mean i i almost never i mean i've maybe have sent out 10 poems in my life the poems have all come from requests, which, you know, is, is terrific. And it's because of the Native American Renaissance and the interest in poetry and the fact that there was a real community of Native writers who talked about each other's works to other people. Um, but uh, when I read the, like, the prefaces to each of the Nortons that the, the anthologies that I've been in, and Joy Harjo has been the hard worker here. Um, she's been the one that's taken the it's very time consuming, it's labor intensive to put an anthology together. So, and she's done the major ones for Norton, 
but I see her and it is it, really interesting wrestling with who can we call Native American now? Who, what do, are the requirements? And um, one of the anthologies is only for enrolled people. If you, you had to be enrolled. Right. And that was your proof. Well, you know, you know what enrollment is like. And first of all, that's federally granted. You know, <laughs> heck with that. But it's okay and fine. <laughs> but it yeah. left out a lot of people. A lot of people, and with yeah, we, we we know we know more than most, you know, of how other things that can happen with families. Uh, yeah, ab- and absolutely, yeah, and some people that didn't have a tribe that's federally recognized. Joseph Bruchak has clearly played his dues as a Native American person, right? But he was omitted from some anthologies until it began to roll around. Then that that was maybe not the best, and we'll. So it, it it's a it's a big, and it's still a big problem. In fact, maybe even more heated now about um, who should be writing and using Native American materials. I think you're right, and I think with social media, especially Twitter and Native lit Twitter, and all of the all, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's getting worse. But I also think we're trying to. I think we're coming to figure it out at least a little bit, and people seem well, to be. I, I do. I, I see the Eastern band doing that. I mean, there, you know, before, and, and again, we may be getting way off here and I'm sorry if we are. But, yeah, this is good uh, for me. It, it's, um, I remember giving my, my first Norton to family members and um, they accepted it, but n- nobody really read it. And I remember in my poems, and that I know of anyway. But when I met Molly, who I just dearly loved, you know, and we were sitting together on a bench somewhere downtown, and and she says, well, she says, um, I know you write poetry, she says, but um, uh, it, it your kind of poetry is, is hard, hard to read. And um, she says, I, I, I think you're too sophisticated for us. And I heard that word, I've heard that word several times since from people from the reservation, that it's academic poetry. They don't say that, but that's the sense is that it's, it's not of the people, you know, it's a different kind of poetry. It's, it's literary, it's too sophisticated. It's, and you know, I finally said, I get it. And that's fine. (laughs) You're like, maybe it is too sophisticated for some people. Well, you, you, I, I, <laughs> Not all people, know. but some people. <laughs> but, I mean, I have had, you know, I mean, I um, one uh, family member did come up to somebody else and say, well, I don't know who this is, but they sure know our, know our family. <laughs> so I thought, okay. <laughs> That's so, amazing. Yeah, yeah. So you, everyone has to come to their own um, understanding, and it's not an easy one. Completely. You know, the, the whole identity politics thing is like, um, I'm I'm too far gone now. I'm too far past that. I just, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I spent a, a lot of time thinking about it. But what I was going to say is, at least the Koala Boundary is now 
was that book that you gave me? I recommended the Muse book. That is the yeah. first time I've seen anyone try to explain anything. I love that book. Yeah. I mean, it's like she's given permission and they've given her permission to give that permission. So um, if, you know, this is what, instead of being sort of secretive and sullen, you can just say there's certain things we don't talk about. That's simple. And I do believe uh, this firmly, that especially the, what I would call the wonder stories, but the stories that have to do um, with uh, things that are, are, you know, not of the kind of real world that people call the real world, uh, the spiritual loaded things. Right. Um, no one outside of the circle is going to ever really understand those fully. I mean, you know, I've got one one of the poems that I have in my new manuscript is talking about that, that if if a story gets taken from where it belongs, its place, and told over and over and modified and told, it loses its power. And stories have power. You know, they do. Um, so I'm feeling really more, much more strong about, you know, being considerate about kinds of stories that we have. There's educational stories, and they're great, and they're wonderful for the whole world. Then there's stories that have to do with that particular legacy of the people that live it. So, Right. Yeah. Let me give this a shot. There is, I want to apologize to all the speakers of Cherokee as I, as I, uh, <laughs> As I try to say, Tlanusi Yi. Tlanusi Yi, the leech place. Surely it is death to come here. This rock overhang opens a shadowy well in the river to give me a deep look. I am hungry for fish. I forget the woman tossed up downstream, her face without nose or ears. I never saw the baby that disappeared, the quiet sleeper. I'll tie red leech skins upon my legs and wear them for garters. My song scythes over wet fields, parting the water like braids, wound from foam feathers, wound from sun perches, snakes and green turtles. I'll tie red leech skins upon my legs and wear them for garters. Its breath is like milk. Young as I am, I am old and striped ahunwogi, girded in red and in water. Young as I am, I know the secret caverns of the Hiawassee, that the river is eating the land. I was hungry for fish. I was from Birdtown. I am dressed in a whirlpool of leech skins. Nice reading. Thank you. Thank you. So I went back and read the Mooney story uh, that that's based on. And I I guess I want to, I'm curious, and you've touched on it a little bit, but maybe you could elaborate on what spoke to you about it. What made you want to revisit um, What spoke to me about it was the possibility of 
this sort of being, you know, living in in in, um, in the mountains and in the river pools and so forth. It's sort of what I'm talking about in some ways and what I'm writing now. Um, and that uh, uh, it's somewhere along the way, I had read that there were people that um, were t- were actually disappeared. Uh, and it was blamed on the leech there, that that being there, and that one of them, you know, did appear with a, you know, without nose and ears, and um, and so this sort of um, bravado of the speaker, uh, you know, saying I, you know, I'm I'm not scared at all, and um, I, I'll hunt you down. Um, and you know, I, I'll wear you on my body, uh, and then it appears. You know, its breath is like milk, and and then <laughs> uh, the the this ghost or the spirit of the the young man continuing on with the poem. So, and part of it was the idea of this knowing there's danger there, but. Pretending there isn't. So, you know, I forget the woman um, I, I never saw. So this sort of, uh, again, a kind of a bravado that brought him down. We're going to put that over here and not think about that for a while. I do this. Yeah. So, I mean, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what struck you when you read it? What was... Uh, uh, what what struck me is the 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 cockiness, the balls uh-huh. of the uh, thing of the uh, the the speaker. Yeah, especially since because I read the poem and then I read the Mooney story and then I read the poem again and now you know reading it again of just that I love the idea of a young Cherokee man saying i i know the stories but i'm going to put them aside and i'm going to come here and i'm going to do this thing yeah i kind of love that <laughs> tell me about your collection a bare unpainted table okay well that was basically my dissertation okay that, that's the manuscript that i wrote um the poems mainly came out of the five years that I was there getting my, finishing up my, I was there five years, almost six, um, because I did a, a postdoctoral year there as well. They they allowed me to do that and teach and then also to continue to write. So um, so that's, that's all that, everything that I've done before and up to there, um, you know, up to graduating is a baroned table. Something I've noticed in a lot of your poems is uh, you do you do use epigraphs a lot, and what do those do for you with your poetry? And do those come after the poem is done? Is it part of the writing of the poem, or is it is that part of like the original idea? It can be all of those. So sometimes it is the um, the uh, epigram that. You know, I just think, oh, wait a minute here, you know, and then, uh, you know, the, the mind starts going. Other times, 
you know this too. When you're writing, it seems like the whole world begins to help you. You know, I mean, it's everything around you begins to have resonance in some ways and sometimes more than others. And so that's where some epigraphs come from. Um, and I, I keep a lot of kind of loose notes around of things that I'm interested in or amuse me. So will you, is there a process for going back and reviewing these notes or is it just kind of muse and happenstance or it's uh, like, do you have them all in a pile? Like, oh, no, they're all over the place. They're all over the place. Yeah. I keep trying to be organized, but no, there's some really good ideas, you know, in the, <laughs> somewhere in, the in that house, somewhere here. in the apartment. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, no, usually if it's really interesting to me, then I'll just get right down to it, you know, and then start, start then. So I got gotcha. you. But I, yeah, I do like them. Um, so often they can just give a hint to another layer. I mean, that's the kind of thing, again, that I noticed in Chenu with Bouchak. He, he, throughout the book, he put it, puts in these structures to help you interpret. So he, you know, um, it's called, he, he's a heuristic writer. He's giving you clues throughout the book um, that um, will help you delve into the layers that are there. Yeah, that's what the epigraphs do, too. So, um, they, yeah. Well, can we uh, can we read a couple of the poems from this collection as well? We, we certainly can. <clears throat> Um, I would love to hear you read Painted Letters. Okay. Um, all I'll say about this is that I do write a lot of poems about art, artwork, and, um, and I love art. Um, and this was when I was living in an apartment on the second floor, and I was still in school, and I had neighbors on my, you know, each side, and often they were exchange students. And, um, okay, I'll go ahead and read it and see. We'll talk about it after that. Okay. <laughs> Painted letters, letters. Reading Brock, his thoughts and reflections on art, 1917, I hunkered down on this particular sentence. Emotion should not be rendered with an excited trembling my own voice, saying it, liking it, and finished this phrase like a rule, a good rule? What if, as if on cue, another sound chimed in, or rather broke through, and what I first heard as the six o'clock rattling its irons at the signal crossing, then as a dissonance, but animate, not a clamor, some alarm, no, not someone to be helped, Someone crying. The view from the front window frame is dinnertime calm. A few cars on the freeway passing by in their regular clumps. The sidewalk empty. The smell of cigarette smoke and hot peanut oil when the door is opened. And off and up to the left, hundreds of black specks materializing into the foreground. Cawing, clapping farts. Parts, a raucous <laughs> swash of crows dividing into ribbons, into swags, inharmonious, 
hapless, a doppelganger wheeling, shapes rendered like storm cloud clouds arced in. One, then two large flocks of crows, at first one wheeling clockwise over the water tower and the trees and the railway tracks, then falling apart. This sky, not Midwestern or Parisian, but Flemish, a storm-laden landscape in the Netherlands. And in the distance, a second swarm regroups, like filings to a magnet, Mr. Wizard's red magnet with silver tips sliding underneath the sheet of butcher paper. Black dust swoops in from the other side, an answering arc, but counterclockwise, louder, rock. Rock over the telephone lines, over the smoky clusters of leafless border trees, bushy as hair cells and the organ of Corti. Crows will chase down the one with a singular prize to make her drop it, or to snatch it away midair. They'll hound a scapegoat, too raucous to be keening, no appearance of fun. They seem desperately aimless, not like the belief we can calm the world with the simple factualities of real sheets of paper pasted onto a painting of a book, nor the ironies of painted letters, maybe most like forgotten dialects, untranslatable vocables uttered anyway because they are ordinal and necessary. So I really like that poem, but I, and I really want to hear you talk about it because <laughs> I have a feeling I'm not getting it on on the quite the levels that it that it can be. But I love certain things about it, including the use of the Brock or the name of the the painter and the having that be the crow vocalization. I love that you ask a question in the beginning of it and consider it, and then are swept away with this other natural world thing. Um, would you just talk about how this poem came to you and then how you constructed it and worked on it and revised it? Unless, yeah, this, is well, another, unless this is another Muse one. <laughs> well, this one is, again, I mean, this I was, I was writing. Um, uh, I was sitting in my living room, and I did have a nice window that looked out, so I would write in the living room. And um, it was a small apartment. And so it was just, um, I'd been reading um, Brock and looking at his paintings and his reflections. And there was one collage type thing that he did that it just seemed so, he was, they were talking about reality and a greater reality and a surreality and, um, you know, getting very academic. And, um, and then this collage was the, this piece of paper, pasted onto a book and um, these painted letters that were uh, just sort of placed around as if they were like, this was the real thing, you know, and not that they were going to spell words or language or anything. Anyway, there seemed to be something so coy about it that it got my ruffles going. And- <laughs> So that's sort of where I started, and um, these were this was all something I could see from my window, 
it's not, you know, not made up. It was just, I was describing it as best I could. Um, and uh, the crows, and I do love crows very much. <laughs> I've, I noticed I they appear in another poem in this collection. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, but I didn't understand at that time that the crows will do this at this certain time of the evening. And they all gather in a big mass and they're just jabbering like crazy. And then they all fly off together to a crow rookery. So this is very social for them to be doing this instead of being just loud and noisy and dissonant the way <laughs> yeah. I was understanding it. Right. And Yeah. And then I began to think about just dialects and certainly Native American singing and um, the, the places where there are just vocables being used and they they don't feel that they have to mean anything. They're there for the rhythm and to, to keep the tone of the, the whole piece going so that they're ordinal. They're, they need to be there, necessary, but they're not going to explain themselves. Thank you. So that, that in a nutshell is, you know. I appreciate that. Yeah. You start section two of this collection uh, with another epigram. Uh, May the paths from every direction recognize each other. Yeah. And also, um, that, I, I know that's a. I know that me has meaning for you. It has a lot of meaning. Yeah. Talking about it. I, I am. I mean, to me, uh, again, this was from a sacred formula. So I'm glad it. Um, I couldn't finish it because um, I would have screwed it up completely. But this idea of um, greeting people with that or, or saying goodbye to them with that, this idea that uh, we are all on these journeys and that, um, that we probably do cross paths in some ways that we're not aware of, whether they're mental paths or energy or, or what. To me, it would seem just such a wonderful idea of sort of communalism and um, friendliness and uh, recognize means more than just that I, I know you, I recognize you, I know something of you in a deeper way. Um, so yes, it, it's, it's a mantra for me. And, you know, I, but people that I really, really care about, I will say that to them if I know I'm not going to see them for a while or, you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah I think it's great. Can we read another poem or two? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let's see. You know, I have to say that when I was in graduate school, it were I was it was a very sad time in many ways. I mean, I was just you know exalted by writing poetry and being among the people I was. But uh, my sister was dying when I left of cancer, and um, uh, they were they were just Freddie died. There was just a lot of things that were. Um, they were always there, you know, in, in the background. So I hadn't realized just how sort of <laughs> sad some of these poems are. They were just what was on my mind at the time. Well, of course. Um, so 
this um, well, zones of energy is one that you picked, um, and it's it's such it, it's um, it came pretty quickly, uh, and it came from this. Uh, it's on page thirty-eight. Uh, it came from this quote from James Merrill, who is a wonderful poet, and people should love him dearly. He's kind of disappeared from view, um, but he's writing. He's writing um, this long poem, and he says, No souls came from Hiroshima, you know. Earth wore a strange new zone of energy. And that just, that to me was absolutely such a crushing, crushing idea that we had, as a, you know, humans created something with the idea of complete annihilation, you know, that complete annihilation so that um, there's there is nothing left and except for this zone of energy and um, and energy is an important word to me <laughs> so this is for Fred um, it's for your dad and um, it's uh, it's one of the poems that and I've, I've gotten fiercer and more bitter <laughs> about war as time goes on. So this is full of um, anger and irony about the uses of power and wartime. And so um, that's basically what it is. It's uh, catching some of the people that were had every potential of having wonderful things spur from their energy. Um, and, uh, and then, um, immediately turning them to war. And, um, so we can, we can talk about it more after, uh, we've read it, um, to sort of clarify things, but it's, it's written in from that mood, you know, of just, um, of being appalled and disgusted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... Count Rumford, and these names are these are true. I, I I've lost track of who Count Rumford, what his first name was, but I don't care. He was a jerk. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. no I, I, I'm, that's childish. But anyway, Count Rumford has placed his hand on the cannon barrel off and on all morning, while the brown horse plods in a circle. The horse-drawn drill is boring a hole in the brass cannon which is red with heat. There, in a green field, he realizes that heat is motion, is energy transformed. Our bodies feel your absence with their blind and deaf interiors. They persist in the detection of warmth where there is no warmth. Sometimes in the exchange of energies, a shocking and peculiar shrinkage occurs. Could you return to that country of footholds and impossible distances? You would see how the hills have moved quietly through the mist, close to the tree line where you used to be. Niccolo Parteglia called the stutterer because of the wound gashed in his mouth. Measures the angle best for cannons, composing in his mind already a book on ballistics. There is no bottom yet to this long arc 
to this deep place where not even through the dripping trees exploding in gay shards of light. Owls and rattlesnakes, foot shoulders and satellites know the unseen luminosity closest to what you've become, beyond the grace of light, beyond fear, beyond the arrow of time that struck rich water into its long flowing of warmth to cold, massive and present there in the dark halo surrounding this passage toward disorder. Thank you. Yeah. Sort of wipes me out. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. You want to read another one, or do you want to talk about that one for a little bit? Um, uh, let's talk about this a little bit more. I mean, um, were there questions that you had uh, about particular stanzas? Well, I mean, I for, first of all, I love the, I guess I would say the, the structure of this, of how we are going from specific, but more of the idea of the general and then very personal, specific mm. again, but very personal now, and then, and then repeating that pattern. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's very powerful, but I guess I don't know how or why it's so powerful and that it works. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I you know, uh, my whole feeling about the Vietnam War was that it was um, uh, it was a war that should never have happened and um, could never have been won and was started under false pretenses, the idea of spreading democracy to the world. Um, and then I think of my brother, Freddie, and when he, he was drafted into the army. He didn't go in, you know, because he wanted to. He went in because he had lost his job at Tradewell and he could no longer pay his tuition. So it was if he'd been paying his tuition each semester, but the one semester he couldn't pay his t tuition, he got drafted. So it wasn't a choice. And, um, and we really, I mean, he was not exactly the kind of person we imagine marching in lines by any means. You know, he was very funny and witty and artistic and, uh, free, free wheeling, um, and very idealistic. So when he went into the army and um, he took his painting, uh, I mean his uh, art materials, he took his art tablet and he took uh, chalk. His paint was too, you know, cumbersome to work with, but he thought he could do some chalk drawings while he was there. Going through, you know, boot camp. And so they were in his locker. And his uh, the uh, sergeant came in and checks, you know, checks all the lockers. And he found these in Fred's locker. 
And he took them out and threw them on the floor, stomped on the book and smushed all the chalk and said, what are you doing with this in your locker? It does not belong here. And he, uh, they all left and he was left and told he had to clean the floor of the, um, you know, place where they all slept because, because there was a mess there. And so that was the beginning of his introduction to having to figure out how to be the person that he was and remain in the army still because he, you know, obviously they weren't going to let him go. Didn't have a choice, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, he, he continued to sort of fight the system. Um, he, uh, there was a bulletin board and he would visit it at night and put up little notices from Binky. That was his, you know, name. And they were little sarcastic things about either having to do a drill a certain way or um, something about the food or, you know, they were, they were funny. I've never but, heard this. Yeah. That's, yeah. So I thought he, I told you post, about this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's amazing. How did he, do you know where Binky came from as a name? Well, no, he just made it up. I okay. <laughs> just Binky. And, um, um, Many of the other guys in the barracks didn't know, but his three of his friends knew it was him. Right. And they would get torn off. And pretty soon, the you know, the sergeants, and they wanted to know who Binky was, you know. <laughs> and it got to be, um, he could have been in a lot of trouble if they found out it was him. So, right. you know, he had to put that aside. <laughs> and uh, I remember a letter he wrote to my mom saying, you know, I can't believe that I'm going to re-up, but I am. He says, because I find that there are some really good things about the Army. He says, but there's so much that needs to be changed. He says, I think I could, I think I could have it, an effect. And, oh, wow. um, and so, you know, uh, this, this idea that he could, he was going to take on the army and some of his errors of the errors of his ways was so freddy i mean it was just so freddy but also the idealism in it too and i you know he he went to vietnam full of idealism that he really believed that they could do something for um the south south vietnamese and under the aegis of democracy and save them from being overtaken by, you know, the North Vietnamese who were intent on doing that, as was China intent on having them take it over. So um, he, he, I think, went with that sort of idealistic notion that if they could um, get this over with really quickly, that uh, something good would come of it. And while there... Um, and I really haven't discussed this with, um, I don't even, I'm not sure I've discussed it with anyone, actually, really. But um, he, well, with my mom. Anyway, he he really um, fell in love with the Vietnamese people. And they with him. And they, um, the, there's a little village and people from the village would come and work on the base. and. And they would, um, he, he made friends with them. 
and um, they the women actually made a big black. He was Fred was quite large at that time. He'd gotten really muscular and gained some weight, and they made him this big suit out of black silk, um, and they called him um, our Buddha. <laughs> he was our he's our big Buddha. And so, you know, that was his, he, he felt very invested in trying to help them. And he lived in terror the whole time he was there. I mean, there were, the barber on the base, they knew it was Viet Cong. You know, so they, but they wanted him to continue to be there because then they knew where he was, you know. Right. And um, so there was all of this. Uh, he was on the front lines. He was in the infantry. He was in charge of his troops. It was up to him to keep them alive. And he felt that intensely. And, um, uh, you know, I've got a couple of newspaper articles of him and his courage and, and staying behind and calling in people to help. And, you know, he was always into things, doing the very best he could. And uh, so that that's really what makes me so bitter, is that this was not only the cruelest war we've ever conducted, you know, in terms of what we did to other people and we did to our own soldiers, um, but it was also the falsest, you know. It was... Um, um, for whatever reason, it was political. It had nothing to do really with good statesmanship or anything like that. So, yes, I'm bitter. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I don't know that I will, uh, I don't think I ever need to get reconciled to it I, I, because it's just unreconcilable unrecon to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, uh, um, the only, the only thing, uh, and this is where I've got some other poems in here, one where my mom is clearly showing her grief. And the only thing is, if it makes me change my life into a bitter person, then that would be disgraceful and awful to do to Freddie and Freddie's memory. So, you know, I would never allow it to be that kind of an obsession of hatred. <laughs> But I, I don't feel at all shy about speaking out against war and violence and cruelty. And that was Good. a long discussion, wasn't it? Yeah. No, it was wonderful. It was absolutely yeah. wonderful. Uh, another one of the poems that I highlighted in here, which I think I think we won't read because <laughs> you've done so much, <laughs> is "To Grief." Yeah, I think that's a I think that's an amazing poem. Oh, it, thank you. It really speaks to me. But that was hard rot. Yeah, that was a hard rot poem, too. Um, that was Franny <clears throat> dying of cancer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, it's, uh, you know, I mean, I used to think we should shy away from grief and so forth, but I don't. I think grief is really, um, the deeper your grief is, um, that shows you some degree of the love that was that came from that, you know, that that was a really, really, those are deep, deep connections. And um, and I think I have one poem about 
where I talk about the Haudenosaunee, you know, the, um, the, they have a ceremony for grief. And the belief is, and, and I think the Cherokee believe this too, that grief is an illness um, and that it can be cured. And, you know, many of the tribes did things for the vets that came back, like washing their hair, having a ceremony where the women would wash their hair and so that they were clean and ready to come back into the, you know, amongst the people. Right. Um, and this, 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 it's called the um, condolence, condolence ceremony. And they've taken, I found out about it because it was online. <laughs> And they've taken that down. They they they've reached the same decision. Not everyone should be privy to that because they don't really understand it. But it is. It talks about what happens to you when when you're grieving. You know, you become blind. You become. You really do. You can't hear. You can't see certain things. It's it uh, it inhabits your body in a way that can be removed through ritual. So. I, you know, I'm not afraid of talking about grief anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that yeah. that poem is amazing. Uh, but let's read a happier one, if that's all right. Yes. Can we read? And this is a this is a longer one, but darn it all, I want it read, if that's okay. And I'm happy to read it if, if you don't. But how do you feel about reading Going Home to Cherokee or me oh, reading Going yeah. Home to Cherokee? Read that one. Yeah. Okay. This is for Donald. And who is Donald? Donald, For the audience. Donald, Donald's son, Donald. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Right, going home to Cherokee for Donald. It's Don's turn at the wheel. Denise is by his side. We've been driving all day, bumper to bumper through Dolly, Dolly Land, Pigeon Fork, and the Gainesville bottleneck. It's been alien, mile after mile of false fronts, bungee jumps, gun and car museums, theme parks and eateries, souvenir shops. G-Love is singing rye and gravelly. My baby ain't sweet like yours. The road becomes loopier. We climb up and wind down. Even the Smokies are a slog. Except for Clingman's Dome, we neglect the overlooks. We settle for glimpses. Distant blue wooded slopes, brown screes, black cataracts, yellow balds, the white peaks standing like mystics who will remain long after the travelers have departed. From now on, we'll be on Indian land. I've been frank about how the, the gantlet doesn't end, goes right into town, becomes Cherokee sky rides, motels, billboard appeals. The water slide is neon blue and flaunts a single-engine prop plane crunched at the top in a simulated wreck, one wing flailing against green trees, blue sky. What was tacky and bizarre before has a new edge now. We drive past Sanuk Village, the teepee, the Indian princess. Chief, Chief Big Eagle waves. He's Cherokee, but his garb is plain style. The red tunic, black bicycle shorts, the blue feathers, garish. Faux Sioux, I quip. Like this stretch into town, he is what he is, but not what he seems. I can't go there, Don says. It's the bear park. Live bears, feed the bears. My son is shaking his head. 
Denise rests her hand on his thigh. She glances back at me. I think how he must love the way her short hair curls around her ear. Bittersweet, I think. Reminded again about the part of motherhood that is reeling, reeling out, letting go. We pass Best Western and the Bingo Hall. We cross to the other side of the Coney Lufty and turn down the drive that flanks Molly's plot of sweet corn. Taller than a man, in rows, the prop roots mounded, sword-shaped leaves, green feather capes, headdresses, gold top knots. We're on Molly's allotment, parcel number 12, Upper Cherokee, Kuala Boundary, Swain County, Cherokee, North Carolina. Our side of Rattlesnake is in shadow. Late afternoon. Up, 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 deep trees. From this side of the river all the way up its slope is owl family land. Tomorrow I think we'll stand on the porch and I'll point up, about there, where a few slants of sun will be angling across the posts of the wood crib, crossed in an X, all that's left of his grandmother's childhood home. A surprise going in, like a boat. The trailer roomier than it appears from the outside. Nook kitchenette, neat living room, shag, dark narrow hall. Denise slips her hand, small and pale, into his. I remember Molly's voice crackling through the phone last week, just calling to chat. I hope the trailer will be okay. I've sent a map. Be careful. The tourist drives so fast. Slow down when you see my corn. The turn's right after. How we talk is what I love. Nuance. A kind of propriety. Earwork. I was cleaning. I used to work real hard at cleaning house. You know how people used to think in the old days. Those engines. Shiftless, I say. And then we laughed. Lace curtains lift. Cool breeze. The master bedroom is sunny. For you, Don. For you, Denise. We hear the crunch of tires. Molly's here. How can I say what it is like to see her face? This face is one I sink into, whether it's a stranger's in the post office or a history professor in Kalamazoo. It's my father's face and my brother's. My sister's broad forehead. Deep mouth lines, slightly hooded eyes, and yes, chiseled lips. A face inclined to quiet. Things pass swiftly across it. Faces capable of keeping what's thought to the barest nudge. And now, my cheek against the warm flat of hers, I think maybe we look a little silly. A woman in her eighties, one in her fifties, leaning, propped against each other. So yeah, so I love that poem. Would you mind talking about it a little bit? Uh, not at all. It, uh, it, it was a poem that I wrote when uh, I went to Cherokee for the, I think it was for the first time, um, and Don and his girlfriend at the time um, arranged they were going to go down to some sort of sports thing. And so they arranged to drop me off at Kuala, um, and then they were going to go on, and then they came back and picked me up. Um, and so, anyway, for sure, it was the first time that I'd met Molly um, in person. We'd written some letters back and forth, and um, uh, I think I talked to her on the phone. But who who is Molly? Uh, Molly is Lula's um, daughter. 
Okay. Lula, Lula Gloin Owl. Right. Yeah. One of your the oldest sister. Yeah. Your aunt, basically. Right. Yeah. The oldest um, of the uh, owl family that was my dad's. Um. And she, uh, um, Lula was, you know, like a, a famous person on the on the reservation, and Molly followed in her footsteps. She was uh, very active in the council. She was on the council. She was in charge of the realty um, department for a long time, and she was a uh, storyteller. So, you know, I really felt. Um, so lucky to meet her <clears throat> and uh so we uh drove down in um don's car and uh i had talked to uh, molly on the phone she'd called me a couple of times before we headed down and she was clearly really worried about if i was going to be comfortable and um if her lodgings were going to be adequate and um and, you know, we, we started to joke a lot, you know, on the phone. She was very funny. And so uh, it was just a, a really easy relationship and just like we had known each other for a long time. So uh, the trip down was eye-opening. Um, I had not seen the sort of, you know, highway that we were going through of a tourist tourist area that goes for miles. It goes past Dolly Land, and um, there's all kinds of gun shops. And <laughs> there, you know, it was just a very strange environment. <laughs> of, Even more so now, I promise you. Is it? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, well, I mean, and I, uh, it was totally so far away from my, you know, sort of glorified ideas of the reservation that. Um, it was stunning, but going up into the Smokies, it was beautiful, and um, I, you know, I could see why they were called the Smokies. It was, you know, this gorgeous, and, and they, we laughed to call them mountains because where we are in the Pacific Northwest, we have real mountains. <laughs> oh, don't be like that. Ours were real mountains too. They're just older. Yeah. Well, yeah, that. That's just uh, Indian humor. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, so that was stunning and gorgeous. And then as we got close to the reservation, I'll never forget the airplane, the crashed airplane there, you know, and it, for, you just see the wing when you're first coming around the bend and and then you realize it's it's a ride. You know? So... Um, and then on into uh, her, uh, where her house was, which was right next door to where our lot had been on the kind of lefty at one point. So <clears throat> that felt really like coming close to home, you know, in a way that I'd never been. Right. So, and her corn was in full bloom. She had mentioned that and um, she came out, you know, to meet us. And it was just immediately um just of moving and, and wonderful experience and this sense of hospitality you know that she was just exuding was uh amazing and 
And Don had been really upset about the, the tourists, you know, and the fake Indians, even though we had talked about it before. We knew. Right. And we knew why it was like that, you know, that tourism was uh, a, a matter of survival. And uh, when the Cherokee uh, garb didn't satisfy people's ideas of what an Indian was, uh, it seemed pretty natural, really, for them to cost costume themselves. But it was still a sore point, you know. It was like... Um, Sometimes the tourists need to grow up, you know, and <laughs> find so, out that a it's different a, way. It's a real huh? thing. I had the same experience as Don at first when I when we kind of, you know, realized that, you know, I was Cherokee and part of the tribe. And I was I was really disappointed that we were not being authentic Cherokees in our mm-hmm. display mm-hmm. to the tourists, but that we were, you know, doing Plains Indian style type headdresses and garb. But it, it, I mean, obviously, with maturity and understanding the situation i 100% get it now but yes. at first i was i also was disillusioned and being like what are we doing uh, but i do get it uh i would love to hear about they wait in dark they wait in dark pools which is a great title by the way um what is well, that project it's it's the project that's going to make me a crazy person. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's where I am trying now, speaking of prose poems, I'm trying to um, to use poetry as the main vehicle for telling a story. So um, there's, uh, and I've, I've discovered that, uh, well, it's a lot harder than I thought it would be, number one. And number two, just structurally, it presented problems. But number two, it goes back a little bit to our earlier conversation about um, the use of traditional materials and uh, how to do that in a respectful way. <clears throat> and that really, that's really slowed me down. You know, I, I mean, I had to do a lot of thinking and reading and talking with people in order to figure out where I come down on that, you know, that particular question. So, uh, but, you know, your idea of it being a superstitious, <laughs> um, it, it's not. Because once you sort of explain something in, sort of in its entirety, um, mentally you've committed yourself to that. And when you're still in the process of writing, you need to keep things open and fluid, you know. So you can... You can give some basic stuff, you know, about, I mean, I that's my opinion, um, about what you're doing. But um, to explain the whole storyline, I think, w- would be a mistake at this point, even though I'm very close to being finished, finally. You know, I told you I didn't write during the, um, when I was teaching. That was a long time of, you know, not writing for myself and um but i was always working on this so sort of collecting information and research and uh and it's uh, turned out to be a bigger project than i envisioned it because um like the bruchak novel um it's is i'm there's many layers to it 
so and each layer if if i'm really keeping true to sort of the idea that it is a, a poem in verse basically um it's required me to uh combine different structures different poetic voices so you know when there's the old story way of saying things and then there's a contemporary story that's um going on which is highly biographical really i mean um and then the the middle one is talking about um the 1800s when hogarth the artist was uh working so it's a scholar who's talking about hogarth but in the background is always this uh native american presence so how did how did you pick Hogarth to be a through line uh, kind of figure in this? Yeah, I picked him um, because he was so uh, obviously uh, in great disaffection with his time period. He um, had many complaints about the social conditions of people. And at this time, this is in London, um, the, it was the beginning of the... Um, uh, you know, factories and modernization and the agrarian society was basically gone. People were moving into the cities. And uh, there was a lot of stuff. <laughs> and and he, was, he also was an innovator in that he was a wonderful artist and can do beautiful canvases and oils. But he, he did these etchings. They were etchings. And... They were of the common folk, and they were um, really crude. I mean, they were crude of the common folk in terms of the morals, the morality, and so forth. So he was going for social issues in a big way, in a graphic style that caught on. He, his work was very popular. He kept oh. it really cheap, and people read it. Uh, you know, it was something that the common folk, you know, could afford and read and discuss and um, and make them think about some of the, you know, the bad things that were going on yeah, and some of not... the funny things and some of the good things. And then the other thing about Hogarth was that he, um, instead of having a picture, I mean, like four pictures that were flat and this is the action, this is the action, this is the action. Within the picture, he would have all kinds of things going on. Somebody, there's a lot of heavy drinking going on. Someone would be tipped back in his chair and you know, <laughs> in the next minute he's going to be, you know, flat on his back. Or someone would be holding a cup of tea and it would be sliding off the hand, you know, the hand. Or um, uh, there would be a, a, a cat standing outside a child's caged bird and looking in. And, you know, so all of these actions in the process of at their tipping point, basically. And I found that really fascinating. So, in terms of uh, novels and verse, they're becoming more popular, but for me, it was uh, Anne Carson's autobiography of Red that absolutely blew my mind. Um, and it still does. 
Yeah. Autobi- autobiography of red. And uh, it's, red it's like about the color? a little... Or red like the mm-hmm. name? Or... Yeah, the, the color. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And it's about a mythic figure, you know, from the Greek and Roman era um, that uh, was um, a little red monster who walked around amongst the people. And he, he, he passed as a human, too. Um, so, you know, there were just many things that drew me to that story. Um, so I guess that's, that's really what I have to say about it. Um, Do you want to read one of the poems that you've sent over, understanding that this is a work in progress? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, this uh, Goji, the warm season, is at the very beginning. This will be, you know, there's going to be sort of a, a preface section, and this will be in it, and this will start the work. And um, this is uh, a quick overview of a story that's told very often, still to these days, um, on the Kuala Boundary and among other Cherokees. And it's a story that um, Cherokees wouldn't say monster, but it's it's a story that does have to do with a, a, pers- a human that's been changed into something else, some other living being. And usually... Um, um, not always, but very usually there's something unnatural or scary about them, you know. So they're they're often used in stories to educate. Um, they're not children's stories to scare them to death or anything, but they're they're stories to talk about human decisions about what they do. So um, that's what's kind of made me worry, you know, just how far I was going to go with this and, um, you know, not turning it from a traditional story into some sort of, you know, statement by me. Um, so anyway, so this is the beginning of that story. And it's, it's so appropriate for our time now because it's a time when the son was angry with the people. And so um, her anger, you know, would beam down on the earth and it was making the crops die and people were dying and it was, and they didn't know why she was angry. And so that's sort of the moral question that's running through it. So in another time, the sun was angry with the people. This was long ago in the memory of the people. When the sky was a vault of solid rock, and swung like a pendulum above the people, and the sun lived on the other side. She threw down her sultry beams, and the people sickened. Who knows why? She was jealous of her brother the moon, some say, how the people admired him for his milder rays. Or maybe forgetfulness, a haughty, unbalanced time, and all she did for the people they assumed as her own. Each dawn, the sky door opened. She climbed the sky arch, but the people averted their eyes. Each day hotter, the snakes came out. They basked, undisturbed by the drums of the people. 
So that's the opening scene. I love that. I love the repetition of, of people. It kind of sets the tone right away, right? Uh, yeah, it does. And we were talking earlier about the use of, um, you know, different formal conventions, formalism. And this uh, this form is actually comes from an old oral tradition, uh, and it's um, Arabic from the, from the seventeenth century, and it's called a guzzel. <laughs> it's G H A Z E L, cool. but guzzel is the way you pronounce it, and it's um, very rigorous in its demands in its Arabic form. And I've followed most of them, I guess, but it's usually in couplets. Well, it's always in couplets like this, two-line uh, stanzas. It always has a phrase at the end that gets repeated uh, in the second line throughout the poem. So that's a really important, um, you know, element. And then in the middle, um, the, the second line can go wherever it wants to, um, but you have to have a rhyme in there that rhymes with something in the first line. So anyway, so time and memory, um, uh, pendulum you've got, I've got going here, uh, beams, some, time again, own, done. Drums, so you know I'm I'm following that to a certain degree, and there's it has to be exactly in the middle of the line, for me not. And, how and then you, in, so go ahead. Sorry. Oh, and, and there's the um, each verse has a it, it can go anywhere. They can it can be about anything. In mine, it's continuous. It's continuously telling a story. But in theirs, it can be just as zany and crazy as they want. But the um, it's it's really an oral um, poem, one that's supposed to be spoken out loud. And if your last phrase is too corny or doesn't work, the audience will boo you. <laughs> you know, because you're building up to this big end, and they if they don't like it, they they'll just yell and boo and <laughs> carry on. Oh, so, that'd be horrible. Uh, <laughs> But I mean, so anyway, it's a traditional oral tradition form, which I thought uh, just fit. And I love the fact that it was allowing me to to bring everything back to the people because that's the whole point. So, Did you try out other uh, stylistic or structural forms before finding the guzzle to use this with? Or did you know immediately if that's what you wanted um, to use? I knew immediately, yeah. I, when I saw the form and uh, was reading some uh, examples of it, I just thought, okay, you know, this this is going to, this is what I'm looking for. So, and I would um, somewhere in the, you know, I don't know if it ever gets published, there'll be something that explains that it is somebody else's style, you know, that it is in Arabic style, because that's, I think, the way to do that, you know, other people don't, but I think it's important. Um, I agree with you. Yeah. So. I want to come, I want to, I want to read another poem from, from this, but I want to ask you a little bit now about uh, just cause I just thought of it. Uh, what are your reading habits? 
when you're both working on something and not working on something? Does that change? Like, um, it does. It used to be uh, if I was working on poems or um, something that I was really, really totally invested in, I didn't read any other poetry. I didn't want to be influenced or, you know, I, I just wanted to concentrate on mine and not think about how other people had solved their problems. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, but I read widely and um, a lot. I'm always reading something. And uh, it's it's really important to me. You know, I, I mean, I it's, it's a real pleasure for me to do. And, um, you know, I'm always learning something when I'm reading, too. So. I love that. Uh, would you like to read another uh, poem from this? Uh, sure. Uh, what? Why don't you, do you want to read one? Yeah, Let's I'll read one. Here. Okay. Let me read, this is Self-Portrait, A Painter with His Pug. And this is where, this was my first introduction to Hogarth. So you're <laughs> introducing me to more than one person and thing, <laughs> this podcast. Your head is turning to meet my gaze. Your eyes blue, a little pouchy, but alert. Your forehead high and rounded, the rakish scar above your right eye, arresting. The beginnings of a smile, but first, a no-nonsense gaze, vital and bright. Not caught in a convex mirror, like Parmigiani, no, which I just messed up the name of. More on arrival, folds of your painter's smock swerving easily into the room, melding seamlessly with the curves of heavy drapery in your studio. Materializing comfortably from your oval frame, clearly a work of art now, a sculptured bust resting on a stack of books, Shakespeare's Swift, Milton, with your loyal pug dog patiently waiting, even as the serpentine line of beauty on your painter's palette lifts. You, claiming I am not an artifact of this memorial myself. Hogarth, so am I lifted by the poets of my life. Ashbury's reflections. Stephen's weight of primary noon. Bishop's the mind in action. Graham's presence. We live at the mercy of ourselves and the dear bonds we rest upon. So I would love if you would talk a little bit about the uh, the references here that I'm not getting. I, I may have looked up most of them, but yeah, <laughs> I certainly was yeah, not familiar okay. with them at first. <laughs> um, well, first of all, there this is from looking really closely at this particular uh, portrait that he made in 1745 and you know some it's very easy to google so you know sometime when you have the chance just google it and yeah and i look. actually i, I did oh, look did it you? up and i will put that for the audience in the show notes so they can just click on the link and see it okay um there's some debate um about what you're seeing in that portrait but what and i and i did read his uh book the art of beauty which is a short treatise that he wrote on um, art. But um, Parmigianino uh, is an artist, an Italian artist, who did a famous self-portrait of himself in a convex mirror. So with the convex mirror, 
he's he's holding his hand up and sort of in front of his face and it's not clear is he reaching out trying to get out of this frame in this uh convex mirror or is he holding holding you back what is it what is this hand doing what is the, the gesture there and so the hand look comes way out you know because it's a convex mirror and it's all distorted then curves around the edge of, you know the inside of the the mirror so he's kind of um it, it, it's not uh, you know him as a self-portrait exactly the way he looks he's distorted and that and there's another mirror in the picture as well so ashbury wrote a really long poem about um parmigianino's uh, self-portrait in a convex mirror that's the name of it and so that sort of is bringing, you know, the Ashbury um, um, influence into the poem. Mm. And then in his uh, treatise of art, he's uh, in his self-portrait. He's his palette, the palette he uses for painting, is um, on a table right next to where he, he's um, this bust is. And on the palette, there's this curved line that he called the line of beauty. He thought everything beautiful had the line of beauty in it. And it's like a, an S, and it does look like a serpent. And, um, and in, on the palette, it's actually rising up. So there's a, just a little bit of shadow that's cast. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm looking at it now. There is. That's crazy. Yeah. And then when you look at it, when you first look at it, you see him, he looks, he's coming, looking straight, you know, sort of at you. But his smock begins to mold into the lines of the green um, drapery. And so it, it's hard to tell where, if he, it's like he's um, coming in and literally materializing into the room you know that um even though there's an oval frame he's coming out of his oval frame and and uh into the room so that his the outs inside of the frame and the outside of the studio are you know getting meshed together right now, i don't know yeah so um when i when I first saw it, I thought, well, this is, he looks like he's at a window. And then I thought, well, no, he's in a frame. And then I look closer and no, he's uh, in a stationary bust. It's a bust. It's not a painting or anything. It's, he's a, he's a sculpture. So oh, I thought, yeah, I thought this is just fabulous, <laughs> you know, and yeah. then, uh, and then his dog is clearly quite alive, and his tongue is hanging out, and he's patiently waiting for his master to come. So uh, it, this all this idea of being able to incorporate his painting style to cause movement in it, um, and a, a different idea about beingness, right? And then he does say um, that he's not. He says in his um, he does several portraits, self-portraits of himself. And he says, I'm not um, a memorial to myself. This is not where I stop. 
I'm always going to be changing. And so the portraits change. And then you find out later that underneath this particular painting is another painting of him that was done earlier. And in that, he's wearing a white wig and he's got on a black waistcoat and, uh, you know, all of this stuff. So it, all of that was just intriguing to me. So that's the story behind that poem. That's um, fascinating. I um, I used to love a television show and it, I know, I, it only came into my world for like a few months or I don't think it's even around now. But it was called uh, The Private Life of a Masterpiece. Oh, In the show, they would take like one painting like that and kind of go all throughout it, look at it from a bunch of different angles and the history Mm -hmm. of it and the creation and its effect on society and all that kind of stuff. I loved that show. And that was, that felt like a little mini episode of that. So thank you. Yeah, it's just fascinating. It's like a discovery. You know, you're just, you're discovering all these things that are in there and, um, there's been, there's been a, some people that say that's too mo- postmodern or something. That's he wasn't doing anything like that, but yes, he was. <laughs> yeah. I say so. <laughs> well, it's, it's almost the same a little bit like we were talking about back when you were in school at, at Washington and, and doing close reads of poems. Like you can look at, yeah. and I think this might segue nice to our discussion of Chanu you can look at things just on the surface and you can enjoy a poem for its rhythm or its meter. Or Absolutely. Or its pretty language, or you can dive deeper and deeper and deeper in the levels as you yeah. want to. And it's there. And I like, yes. One of my favorite things, I mean, this part of why I do the podcast is to hear somebody's deep explanation of a work of art on, you know, in a way that I would not have necessarily gotten on my own. Yeah, I know. It, it, that to me too, is just really exciting stuff when somebody can, you know, has that and she sees that and you haven't been able to, you know, you didn't get it at first. So yeah, that's yeah. fun. Yeah. Uh, you sent over one more poem from the work in progress. Do you mind if we read that one as well? Oh, sure. That's fine. And do you want to read this one or do you want me to read this one? No, you can read it. Okay. This is called relish is a wet word. She was exhausted. Getting out was real work. The mud sticking to their clothes was heavy and stank. Their skin itched madly. A sudden downpour followed and the siren stopped. Had she ever felt more exposed? In a daze, they watched the park ooze into its Dutch-style mode. The rage for mellow tints Hogarth loved to hate and hated to love, everything aging. The river's high gloss as it sped by, varnished brown, the lake and trees dark mesotents, as if Rembrandt had smoked the whole landscape. They watched the the trestle rising up monumental, outlined like an ancient ruin against a nicotine-yellow, tornado-ready sky. And they were alive, holding hands, left behind with a trace of something remaining, a suggestion of something massive and important. Yeah, this occurs at uh, toward the, the end of the, um, the work that I'm doing. 
and um, they've been caught. It's this. Uh, it's uh, the main character, Mrs. Bird, and she has uh, sort of taken under her wing uh, this this boy that seems to be quite lost, um, and he is the, the son of the groundskeeper where she lives. So those are the characters in this poem. And um, the the weather is getting really wonky. Um, it's, uh, you know, the um, climate change and is causing um, some real problems as it is now. Um, and uh, so she's, she's uh, he disappeared, he, went, he ran away. And so she knows where he would go in the park and, and catches, you know, rescues him, basically. Um, and uh, they've had a sort of a fractious uh, relationship toward the end. So this is them coming together, you know, in a, a, a way that they both, you know, appreciate. Uh, and then there's just little, some little things in here that are the, the, the description of the high gloss and the varnished brown. Um, and Rembrandt. Rembrandt was a competitor with Hogarth, and they did not like each other, and they took every opportunity to mock each other's work. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, and Rembrandt was considered high art, and Hogarth low art, which, you know, Hogarth was really pissed off about that. But, um, uh, so, but they, and here they've come together, you know, it's uh, quietly, but (laughs) <laughs> At least they can be in the same poem together. <laughs> so um, that's that. What do you mean by a wet word? You know, title? I'm not even sure about that title. I just, um, I was thinking about how you relish things, you know, not relish the, like, on your hot dog, but <laughs> that you, the things that you just, you know, relish. And there's something to me about this landscape that is just in my mind, it's just relish. I relish it. It's wet and it's uh, shiny and it's there's a high gloss and you see things change and become much more than they uh, seem to be, you know. So um, that's my own little joke for myself in there. I love it. (laughs) I don't know. I may change it. I keep looking at it and thinking, well, I don't, we'll see. (laughs) So you said you were almost towards the end uh, of of completion. How, um, what stage are you at? Are you revising? Are you looking big picture or small picture or? Um, What what is your process like for that? Yeah, I know where I'm going with it. And I mean, I've got, it's over a hundred pages right now. So um, I'm weeding out uh, the weeding out the things that can go. And, um, and that's basically it weeding out and then making transitions um, where, you know, where where they've been moved. So um, for me, it was, Figuring out these different structural, formal aspects of the, and and you know I was trying to have it first all the same kind of like Ann Carson's. It's all pretty much the same 
you know, it's double, two couplets usually and are the same length poems and so forth. Well, mine just couldn't be that way. So there has to be a style for each of the main characters. And um, Hogarth is finally sort of relegated into these index card uh, visions of him throughout his career, which is kind of fun because she's doing research on him. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that idea. And, um, but you know, it, you can't just be all over the page for something too long. It's too confusing for people. And <clears throat> it just, it, it seems sloppy rather than, you know, polished. <laughs> so, <laughs> do you have a. So that's, yeah, yeah. But the amazing, the, the, the hardest part was how to handle the, the old Cherokee story. And, um, uh, that's changed radically. So, um, I think that's all the further I'll go on that. <laughs> what I originally, you know, was, uh, uh, thinking I, I can do and still tone it down considerably. So that's, I think, but my decision has been, you know, is, is with it. Yeah. So, right. yeah. So, you know, I, I, it's been, um, I love to write, you know, it's been, it's one of the things that, well, Tony Hoagland, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's a poet, he's written an essay on um, different kinds of writing um, things that he noticed. He's, he's a close reader too. And uh, he's got one chapter that says, are you still writing that novel about your grandfather? <laughs> And then he goes, he goes into in his essay. He's saying, you know, that's okay. He says it's no, and you don't know yet whether that's just a seeping morass of moss and water rivulets, you know, that you're working on that keep bubbling up, or if you can get something really good out of it. He says, but if you're obsessed with it, go for it. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I might need to read that. That might hit close to home <laughs> in yeah, a good way or a bad way. I'm not sure which way. And he says, one of the good things about it is you never have to worry about what you're going to work on next. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're never going to get to next. That's right. Oh, so that hurts. works for me. <laughs> I know. That, that hurts. Uh, what is Hoagland? H-O-A-G-L-E-N-D? Uh, yeah, or? it's... Um, Tony, and it's H-O-A-G-L-A-N-D. All right. And he's got, his the name of his essay on poetry uh, is Real Sophistication, <laughs> spelled S-F, no, uh, real, and then S-O-F-I-S-T-I-K-A-S-H-U-N. So, real sophistication. <laughs> I gotcha. That tells and me a did, lot right there. Yeah, uh, he's he. When I first saw him at a con con conference, I just didn't like him at all. He seemed very. <laughs> he seemed like a one of the big boys, you know, just all jovial, jovial and very good looking and tall and, um, and a great sense of humor. But he just seemed to be not serious enough for me, you know. <laughs> okay. But he's. Uh, I've got grown to really get a huge kick out of his poetry. I thought his essays were excellent. 
and he's written his last book. He, he, he's, uh, he's in my age. He's pretty sure, you know, this is his last book. Um, and it's called Priest Turned Therapist Treats Fear of God. <laughs> oh, that's a great title. Yeah. And it's very, it's, it's really quite wonderful. I mean, you know, he, he did great. It's uh, Grey Wolf Press. Oh, Grey Wolf does great stuff. Yeah, they do. They do. I like them a lot. Yeah. Yeah, they've got, I mean, many, many of the books that I find that are my favorites, you know, come from Grey Wolf or Copper Canyon. Grey Wolf, I think, probably more so now. That's very, very cool. Well, Gladys, I think I've delayed talking about Chanu as long as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we take a little, a little bit of a break, and okay. uh, and then we we we, we will discuss Chanu. Hello, everyone. Just a brief moment to, to let you know that we will be discussing uh, thoroughly and with spoilers. Joseph Prusak's novel, Chanu. Uh, I think uh, the book is definitely worth a read. Uh, it's it's interesting on many different levels, which we discuss. So I highly encourage you to pick up a copy of Joseph Prusak's novel, Chanu. Enjoy the read, and then come enjoy our conversation about it whenever you get a chance. All right, and we are back. Uh, Gladys? What are you introducing me to? <laughs> I am introducing you to a novel called Chenu, and it's by Joseph Bushak. Um, it's uh, it's now I see been um, selected to be part of the American Indian Literature and Critical Studies series, which I think is a, a really uh, quite a high honor. Um, Joseph, uh, and I were both born in 1942, <laughs> so we're, we're from, we have the same astrology sign. Oh, really? What, what is uh, that? Actually, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know. Sagittarius. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway, he's, um, he's been writing for a long time. And uh, he's been very active uh, in terms of Native American literature and promoting it. And he's the one that organized the uh, Return of the Gift gathering. And then he also put together an anthology afterwards um, of the uh, writers that wanted to be included. They could just send him their poems and he put them together. Um, and he's... Uh, <laughs> He's, when we come down to these sort of identity issues, um, identity politics is kind of what it is. Um, he, he's had a, a, you know, a kind of a hard time because he's not an enrolled member because his tribe is not federally recognized. So it's a, I, it's, it's a state recognized. Um, tribe, the uh, uh, Abenaki, but like many of the early tribes, uh, they didn't have uh, like one, they, they weren't all one big mass that were all like Sioux or um, Eastern or Cherokee or 
um, Creek or something, they were more like the Catawba, who were all unique and individual villages that um, would be in the same area and converse back and forth and cooperated. Um, not, not quite a confederation, but similar to that. But they each had their own um, names, um, and they they might have slight differences in their uh, traditions. Um, and they were, you know, self-enclosed within their own group in terms of who was in charge. So, like with the big the Catawba is the case in point here. Is when settlers came and they decided they wanted to colonize that area, they um, just talked around and said, "We want to talk to your chief." And, um, and so somebody took them to a Catawba chief, who was one of many, but they thought he was the one in charge. So they made all kinds of treaties and agreements and so forth with him, but the others had no, they, they you know, they, they had not agreed to any of this or were any part of it. So that's what happens, you know, then you get these groups that are fractured apart and, um, some people say they're not Indian, and others say, "Well, of course they are." And they're so. It, um, it took him a while, you know, to I think um, get to the point where he feels really comfortable identifying with who he is, um, mm. and he's totally accepted, you know, by Native American writers. He's 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 done you know wonderful things. Uh, and he's, but in the book, he spends quite a bit of time at the beginning explaining, you know, telling where he comes from and why it's this way and what it feels like to be, feel like that you're not completely of the people. And, um, and you know, that's really important stuff um, for non-Indians to hear, that there there's not just one reservation system or one you know, all these big tribes, the Sioux tribe, this is Sioux tribe. Well, that's not true. It has all kinds of groups within within itself. Right. So, um, uh, so I, I think that this novel is his way of really addressing that, you know, for himself and bringing it to the attention and explaining how, um, how, how, uh, hard it is to bear sometimes when you have those kinds of conversations about do you know do we include you or not so uh yeah i thought the preface was extraordinary and i I loved his voice immediately of uh a very friendly tone i was surprised that it when i think of a preface and this i know this may be maybe this is just recently um but I, th- I think of something still falling in the narrative. So I was surprised that this was just an, a nonfiction essay almost or introduction. Exactly. More, yeah. More the preface, but I, I really found it fascinating and I, I like this guy like immediately. Yeah. <laughs> by, by hearing him, He's hearing very, him very, yeah, very, very personable and likable um, in person. So, um, and the, the section that it does on Indian humor 
is is uh, you know there's been many articles now written and um, but it's a really nice concise you know description of why what what its purpose is you know why why sometimes the corniest jokes there are in the world are you know everyone's just rolling on the ground with them you know <laughs> so. it's so it's so funny so I remember when I was first reconnecting with the the tribe and with with you and with the family that. It was something that I guess was asked often in the groups that I was in where somebody was either like at the Cherokee bonfire or something like that. And they would bring up, you know, what's the difference between what well, the stereotype of what a Native American person is or a Cherokee person versus the reality. And the what they always answered was the laughter. <laughs> and yeah. they're absolutely right. And you're, you're right. It is this kind of, again, no offense to anybody, because um, I do it too. Uh, uh-huh. It's this kind of corny dad joke type humor like every everyone laughs at their own joke you know whether anybody (laughs) else is or not they just like they tell the joke and it just makes them happy and so i i kind of love that i think my i think as i spend more time with cherokees i think my humor is going in that direction but uh it's something really it's something i definitely notice and is true there is an indian humor or feels like there is yeah, it's a real thing. I mean, and 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 it's a way of um, differentiating yourselves in some way. It's a way of showing that you're part of the group. Um, if if you get the joke, you know, well, that's pretty good. You know, you're, you're welcome home. Um, uh, and it's it's a way of turning the stereotypes on their heads. You know, because you can turn the stereotype right back around onto um, the, the person that's uh, put it on you. So it, it serves all kinds of purposes. Yeah, I really um, loved that. And I loved in that section they mentioned, he mentioned Robert Conley, the Cherokee. Yes, yes, novelist. they were they, yep, good friends. They were good friends. Yeah, so Robert. Was, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say Robert was Western Cherokee. Um, so it's kind of amazing that they they actually met even because they're from opposite you know sides of the United States but that's Indians for you <laughs> I was surprised when I went to IAIA and I was surprised talking just to you know some contemporary native writers that I know some even Cherokee who are not even aware of Robert Conley what how is he viewed I mean, <laughs> we don't need to make this a Robert Conley dissertation either but I'm just I, how is he viewed in in the literary community or, or is he? Or because um, he, he was prolific and he wrote about Cherokees, right? Uh, you know, I don't know really what why he. You're right. He isn't. Um, he he wasn't part of the returning the gift group or anything like that. Um, uh, maybe he. I don't know. Yeah, curious. Okay, I was curious. Yeah. I, I so, really don't know. Uh, yeah. So what is a Chanu? That is the title of the novel, but what, what is a Chanu? Well, the Chanu is uh, a human that was turned into a, he says, monster, but um, it's uh, this this being that lives up in the mountains and because it can sort of hide up there. And um, it has a voracious appetite. Uh, it, its its appetite is un, 
uh, insatiable. So he, you do not want to meet him because he's always hungry. <laughs> uh, and it, in a way, uh, it's a double, there's a double, there's a sharper edge to that because uh, the early colonists um, uh, claimed that the the tribes up uh, where Bruchak is, the Mohawk and the Penacook and the Penacook and were cannibals, um, and uh, they they are think they're talking about you know like ages and ages and ages ago, you know, sort of prehistory. But that idea of them being cannibals carried into the savage Indian, you know, the early settlers here. And that this is a way of, um, uh, I mean, I think that the belief is that Shinu probably, it does exist on some level. Um, but that uh, it's also um, been, you know, uh, reviled maybe for all the wrong reasons. So um, that's as much as I can say. I mean, I, it's not, you know, this is, I, I, I'm, I'm not Pentecook, right? Yeah. <laughs> <don't> yeah. You <laughs> know. <laughs> well, from so, the, uh, like from that introduction, I, 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 I love this because, well, I love it for many reasons, but the, sh- the Chanu is an embodiment of greed and selfishness. Formerly a human being, its twisted behavior transformed it into a giant cannibal monster. One of the messages of the traditional Chanu tales is that out of control selfishness and greed creates monsters, which is, mm-hmm. I, I think, what we see all around us, right? In society. Well, right that's now. exactly right. Yeah. And, and the um, I've only seen two reviews of this book, which I think is really pretty stunning anyway. There, there must be others that I just, I didn't spend a whole lot of time trying to find them. But that both reviews really make big mistakes. <laughs> And one of them that it says that uh, Chenu is a metaphor for the uh, kind of consumerism, you know, um, greedy, uh, land hungry um, enemies of the of native people, um, and certainly um, you could see a relationship there in terms of similarities, but. It's, he's not a metaphor. He's considered to be to be real in terms of um, the way that he can be brought to life through stories and through um, the way he's understood. So that always that bothered me a bit. It's not he's not just making up this monster in order to um, you know diss the the white white man. Um, but certainly we can see some similarities there. Right. It certainly works as a metaphor, but that's, it is not only a metaphor. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. With Chenu and the other, uh, it was really quite a, a wonderful long review. It was in JSTOR. I can't, I, I could find the name for you, the woman that wrote it, but uh, she was a, I think a PhD student. And she said that the Chenu was the um, the uh, the book was about Chenu, uh, a, a monster, and uh, that's also incorrect. Uh, you know, it's it's about so much more than that. And if you wanted to narrow it down to one thing, uh, I would say survival. It's a book about survival, and um, 
uh, that's that's hit on every level, you know, personal, national, tribal, um, and so yeah. forth. So, well, just just as a just as a reader that did, I, I mean, it, it it's not an easy read. Let's put it that way. I don't think. Did you? I found it to be a pretty easy read. Oh, did you? I thought so. I, I found, I mean, on a, a, a just a most rudimentary level, like chapters were pretty short. <laughs> very um, short. <laughs> there was, yeah. you know, the, the his in scene work of action was of what's going on. It, it was is really good. Uh-huh. Like it starts with, and then of course you have these other, uh, you know, breaks for traditional stories involved in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did not think it was a hard read. What I noticed oh. about it is that I would read a chapter and would really love that chapter. And then maybe, but it would take me a little bit to want to read the next one. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure that, it, that was about the book as much as it was just about me and what was going on with me this month. Uh, so I did. So in that way, my, it, it, it was a hard, it, it, that way it was a hard read, but I, I didn't yeah. think that was the way you were thinking, but maybe I'm wrong with that. No, I, I, I think that's absolutely, uh, it is a hard read in, in the sense that the kind of storytelling that we really look for in a story is a, is a story with characters and, and that keeps um, building toward its, its climax and then there's a resolution of some sort and then there's an ending, right? And the old Freitag triangle, you know? Yeah. Um, and um, this book, in no way, comes close to that. You know, there, it's it uh, if it has a climax, it's from chapter forty-four and on to the end. I mean, it's like way, way late in the in the book. It's it's so the one thing we've left out so far in, in just basic things is that he is writing a, a kind of a detective story. Uh, this. Um, uh, he's writing about an investigator, and he's modeling it on the, his heroes, uh, the people that he, he likes who are all really good contemporary, you know, detective and uh, uh, crime writers. Um, and I think the one that comes closest is um, Robert Cray. And I love Robert Cray. I, he's, I, he's just, I read him like candy, you know. He's just a really good detective story crime novelist and he's a self uh, very very funny self-effacing good guy um he's a sucker for women um and he has his buddy joe pike who is this very secretive and strange man who has these tattoos of red arrows on each shoulder and is um is the one that uh, has no hesitation about anything, you know, is it? And so it, it, they, they sort of model in some ways um, the main character in Chenu and uh, his good friend, Dennis. So one of the things that I noticed in the reviews is that no one ever talks about this characters, you know, that this, this, the stories of, um, 
Anyway, their friendship is just fabulous, you know, and they're two vets that have gone through hell together in Vietnam, and um, they've done hand-to-hand battle, and, and they, they know what they're doing. And their their roles are very similar, except that Dennis, and you find he's come back and made a home for himself back on the uh, reservation, and he's this uh, sort of like a second mother, you know, he brings the food and peels the oranges when they have a snack. And, you know, <laughs> he's just this dear man. Um, and then Elvis uh, Cole uh, character, uh, Pojo, is the, the real detective, right? He has a sidekick. So, right. and that, the idea of investigating and following clues is... Um, basic to this book as well i mean he's he's that part of the genre is is you know they're finding clues all the time and in this particular world they're they have to use tracking right what they're really good at they're familiar with the land and they've also done a lot of tracking and you know when they've been in in war together so um that's one of the strands and uh Early on in the novel, um, Pojo says, you know, everything, there's, everything has layers. And, uh, you know, it's kind of sounds like, okay, that's true. Everything has layers. But this book is totally built on layers. So that's another thing. We're used to following one main line, you know, through to the end with a traditional um, English story, you know, American story, detective story. But here, it's all about investigating over a long period of time. But these other threads of the story are being um, pulled through at the same time. And um, uh, so instead of the Freitag Triangle being a, a proper image for this, the one that appears, and he even hints at it, is the idea of um, a basket, a making a basket and pulling the the slats through and until you get to the end. Or for Cherokees, it would be finger weaving, you know, the way that you pull threads through and get finally then you get the whole whole piece. So um, that I think is when it's very subtle, but I think it it frustrates our expectations of what a really good detective story should be like. That's interesting. And, yeah, and so I, I counted um, at least four strands that were, you know, key, and one's just storytelling, how he handles these uh, traditional stories, um, and in some ways, um, if you're not used to that, it seems like an interruption, or what the heck is that doing here, you know, or... I want the story, you know, to go on. So, but if you go through and and really pay attention to where they're positioned, the stories are always related to the action at that moment in the novel. That there's something in there, some bit of wisdom or some um, bit of tracking knowledge or something, or some explanation of if you're hunting, why you hunt and why you kill and when you don't, you know, these, these sorts of things. 
And so hunting, survival, and warriors is another strand that's going through it. And then dream and all the different kinds of ways that you experience dream, uh, whether it's, um, you know, just a, your, your regular dream or a nightmare or a dream that really you are totally active in and you're, you're a participant in and you understand what you're supposed to be doing in that dream or the kind of dreaming where you're able to find lost objects um, that he, he's, he has that ability. It's just understated, but it's there. Um, and, and so I guess that's all of them that I had, but that's a lot. <laughs> that is a lot. He starts with a dream too, which I thought was an interesting yes. choice. Yeah. He starts with a dream of being pursued. Mm-hmm. And, and later on, we find out that's not exactly what the dream was about, but um, it gets us into the idea of being pursuing um, or being uh, hunted down. And that idea of hunting uh, comes through all the time. Um, these wonderful the story of when they he first sees a buck, you know, his, his uncle teaches him how to hunt for the buck and how you think about the buck and have prayers about the buck and know exactly why you're going after him for food only. It's not a trophy. Uh, and how you treat, treat it respectfully after it's dead. All these things compared with the, um, uh, the guys that try, the bikers that come and try and, you know, take him down and that kind of fighting that runs through the novel. Right. Well, I I, um, I don't want to go on too much more at length other than to say that uh, I, I think it's a really, really generous book, um, that it's it's ambitious and generous uh, in, in the way it's trying to explain these, these uh, principles, but to explain them without um, artistically garbing them up in any way. <laughs> by artistically garbling them up, do you, do you mean that this is what I think you mean? Was my experience is that he he weaves in the the knowledge of his tribe and how their worldview and their relationships with their characters uh, in a way that is accessible but not spoon fed. Yes, it or flows not, nicely. Yeah, nor is it magical realism. I was talking about the fact that he's sort of dropping clues throughout the novel about how to read the action um, and and enabling you to find those layers or not. I mean, he's not pushing it or anything. And he uses uh, those uh, sort of koans from his um, uh, different um, sifus, you know, his martial arts teachers and they are always also adding another level um i enjoy those like i enjoyed your uh i've forgotten the term whatever the i don't know what it did we said it a bunch of times yesterday but i've forgotten it already but the epigram or epigraph like oh yeah yeah. like i enjoy his little shifu's you know words of wisdom beforehand Yeah, and some of them are just really so right on, you know, on the truth of what's going on in in the action itself. 
Right. Then he he um other things these heuristic or these little clues that he's leaving is that he um has his t-shirts. And you know the the t-shirts are funny and they're they're <laughs> they're campy and you know they're just uh kind of goofy but every single one of them has to do with native survival. And this is all about retaking land that is native and that they need for their own tribal identity. So um, they're, they, you know, they, it, they just kind of go through, but if you really think about them, that that's what their theme is anyway. Right. Uh, and then he makes those lists. He starts off, you know, it's like four things, but throughout the novel, he's he's a list maker, and so those lists are also just really good for a book. Uh, somebody who's reading the book because there's like eighty thousand characters in this. You I know, am, this. <laughs> it's a great. I am. I am not going to rip that off specifically, but like it. It was a great reminder to that you need to orient your reader ever so often to make sure that they know what where we are in his yeah. investigation. And I thought that that served, I thought it was a, a great use of that device. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's what I mean by generous. He really, he's not trying to be, you know, um, just really, really smart or something about native American. He's really trying to share that in, in a wonderful way. And then, you know, I'm, I, I'm going to sort of wind up with this one last thing and that is um, the way that he uses uh, traditional stories throughout. And uh, sometimes it's um, pretty obvious why he's doing them. Um, but other times it's like, you know, he'll be in the middle of a fight and he stops and you get this four-page story, you know. It's like, uh, wait a minute, give us a break here. Um, but there's... One of the very earliest stories that he talks about is when he heard as a child from his uh, Ab Abenaki uh, aunt and uncle that lived uh, on the island and that he'd visit in the summertime. And it's on page 34. And it's about um, uh, um, just uh, this little little story. It's It's just very simple. But he's remembering it again. And so he, the groups that are protesting and that are under having to be under, um, you know, surveillance and, and by the FBI and they're being opposed, the natives, they call themselves the children of the mountain. And the, um, the little epigraph at the beginning for that is to see the mountain be the mountain. And so he talks about uh, Aunt Molly's voice began the telling. Began the telling. I lean closer to catch every word, every inflection, every breath. And then the story starts. Long ago, a girl was out picking blueberries. She was strong and good-looking. This girl, but she had not yet been able to choose a husband. So as she picked the berries stripping them from the bushes like so, like so, like so, she was thinking. It would be good to find a fine man, she was thinking. 
Now, that's just a little, you know, seems very innocuous in the stories. She finds a man, and he takes her up into the mountain, and they live. And they have children that have iron eyebrows. <laughs> so the children are showing that they're now have kind of two parts, two kinds of people to them. Um, but it's that gestural thing that he's trying to remind us of that whoever tells this story is going to put their own spin on the story, right? Um, she could be stripping him and just grabbing them off, right? Because she can't stand whoever is around. She wants a tall man. Or she could be being really picky and picking him off that way. Or she could be just delightfully picking them, whatever. But um, it's just reminding us um, if we're really paying attention, that every word, every inflection, every breath is really, we're not getting that in a, you know, a written story. It's something that we could be more aware of. Right. And then um, he's... On a, just a practical level, because something mm -hmm. I, I struggle with is, you know, just the ratio of description to action to commentary mm -hmm. to to metaphor and things like that. But it, and I'm just going to read a little bit before the story because I just think this is so well done too. You know, the first he has the uh, the epigraph, and then it's the children of the mountain. The name sent a tingle down my back, even though I knew it just referred this time to what McWay and the other Indian occupiers called their group that had taken over the campsite. Somewhere within the walls of my memory, I heard again Aunt Molly's voice begin the telling as I leaned closer to catch every word. So it, like it flows. That's like hard to do. It is sometimes it's, I find I struggle sitting in front of the computer when all I really have to type is like, you know, two weeks later. And like yeah. that actually gets me to that two weeks later. It's just so nicely done. And I think all of the stories, or at least the ones that I highlighted, it's just very elegantly done, transferring from one from the action to the flashback to the to an actual, you know, traditional story that he's right. told. And then and it, the matter. story goes, yeah, the action goes on. But you know, he said the name sent a tingle down my back. So, and then here's this little pleasant story about this girl and forgetting what she wanted and being up in the mountains, and so. Um, you know, it's the question could be, well, okay, you know, but that's kind of inter interrupting things in a way that's not helpful. But it it is because it makes you think if you're really reading carefully, why would that story make this the tingle down his back? Why why would it strike him as being really interesting right at this moment? Right. Yeah, so, you know, you could sp spend a long time puzzling that out. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, of course, I just mainly glossed over it. But you're well, right. That's, that's the fun of doing this, is, like, thinking about that on that deeper level. Yeah, well, I didn't get it. I've read, read this now um, one time and then a second time with a pen in my hand and writing, you know, like, all over it. So it's that kind of book you... You can read it as an entertainment. He wanted people to do that. He wanted it to be entertaining. Um, or you can, you know, uh, uh, spend more time on it and be rewarded with that, too. So uh, I do think it's, it's, it's quite a remarkable book. There's more than one enemy in this, right? 
More than uh, one, more than one danger. Oh yes, absolutely. Which I, which I love as a choice because that's also, you know, it accurately uh, reflects what's going on yes. in Indian country oh, right now. Yeah, totally. You're right. Of course, that's I, I should have. That's a huge one of the strands that's going through is uh, um, all of these different factions and, and, and what what they're standing for. Um, and very eye-opening to many people, I think. You know, they would have no idea that this kind of internal stuff goes on within a tribe. They just assume they're all, I don't know what they assume, but... Yeah, I don't, I, that's a good question. But it, I thought it, I thought it was great in how it, it has the different factions within the tribe, then also has like the struggles revolving around um, having a casino or not, being federally recognized or not. I like, yeah. Again, it all blend blended seamlessly with the plot. Yeah, yeah. And I think he does a great job of setting the, you know, the detectives. You know, traditionally in an amateur detective story, you know, or even in professional detective stories as well. You know, they have a thing. They have a gift. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he has the gift of finding things, but he also sets him up that he's just a complete badass right from the beginning. Right. You know, he's got <laughs> and he does it. One thing is just so obvious that he does it, but it's so easy and good. And the other I I just love that he just never followed back up on something. So, he talk, you know, he starts off and I don't remember where he is, but he's rural. He's isolated. He's far away from the East Coast where his tribe is. And. You know, he, he was like, I do my morning routine of like, you know, 20 push-ups on my hands, 20 push-ups yeah. on my toes, 20 push-ups on my pinkies. <laughs> you know, like, all right, you're a badass. We get it. Yeah. But then that's he's got the person. Your... It's just so Rather immediate, than... like, oh, you're awesome. <laughs> you know, like uh, <laughs> Professor Langdon in those uh, Da Vinci Code books, you know, like he swims a mile every morning. You know, like yeah. I love detectives have something like that, that, that routine that is always, yeah. I don't know, as a reader, I love. Yeah, me too. Me too. And, and then he barely mentions, like, that his friend was coming to house sit, but, like, but the friend doesn't know about the, you know, the 500-yard escape tunnel that's, <laughs> that he's built under his bed. And so you're just like, who is this guy? You know, like, <laughs> who is this dude who has a tunnel? And then it's not hardly even mentioned the rest of the time. You know, you just know that, there's there's this guy's got history with Vietnam. He's got history with his buddy, and he's some still going on because he's still got that tunnel. <laughs> I just thought that yeah. was great. Oh, well, you know that book by Muse that we've mentioned a couple of times now. Yeah. She talks about a Native American way of telling stories, and she also talks about the Freitag Triangle. Uh, it, it model is really not, it doesn't seem to be working quite as well because um, it is pulling, generally it's, there's very complex, you know, layers that are going on, I think, and I think she's right. Um, the There's a book I haven't read that I've been meaning to, and I think it's about, you know, I think the subtitle is about native nonfiction, but it's that meander, spiral, explode book which talks about uh, alternatives to the Freitag's triangle mm-hmm. and, oh interesting and i think one of when i was in school certainly one of the craft talks talked about alternative methods and we, there was like the finger waving there's the basket there's like a, a pedal structure which i think oh, is very appealing wow. to me and i think i think that's what i'm 
using at the moment. Oh, that's that's fascinating. Wow. Because Freitag's principle is is great for some stories, but it's not great for well, every sure story. Well, sure it is. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, and one thing about this one and um, is that there really is no it doesn't let us off the hook. There's no conclusion, no complete solving of the problem at the end. It's, it, it, there's no, it continues on. There's no resolution, right? They don't get the land necessarily. Things are still up in the air. Um, they do, they have found the investigators have found their bad guys, which is good. Um, but it's not saying, well, this is how bad it was then, but you know things are okay now. It's, it's leaving everything wide open here. So right, it, it's it solves the smaller picture crime, which is interesting, and we are following. But mm-hmm. the bigger the bigger institutional issues and societal issues are are, are yeah. sort of going exactly. And the other thing, one other thing I wanted to mention was that he does use um, oh, what do you call it? An indirect discourse, you know, on this uh, throughout. Uh, it's a di- if you I think if we went through and highlighted all the dialogue, it would be just minuscule in proportion to it's his voice telling the story. And I think he handles that really, really well. Um, it, you never feel uh, like telling him to shut up, you know <laughs> it's, it's like uh, and and he sort of weaves all this other in stuff in there um, without it breaking the story up uh, horribly. But some people will find... Yeah. Go ahead. Some people find what? Well, I was just going to say, some people will find the stories interjected in the middle of a fight scene, you know, can be a a little disturbing or annoying, but... Well, it could be. Mm -hmm. But he does it well. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. Again, that balance of the scene work, you know, of what's actually going on and then mm-hmm. with uh, the asides about broken treaties, aim, wounded knee, you know, like there's <laughs> yeah. uh, two personal stories, again, to the the natural native stories, but that he always brings back really to his, uh, they're integral to the character itself and, and what the character is feeling and yeah, thinking and doing, which is, yeah. which is why it feels so natural. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it was fun to kind of go through it with a, this what uh, um, Billy Collins calls when people dissect a poem, you know, he says, yeah, you tie it in a chair and beat it with a stick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's but an this image. is much more fun than that. <laughs> <laughs> it is much more fun than that. It's part of the, yeah, it's really part of the joy. Um, that's really funny. Were there other moments of, that stand out for you, I, you know, in the, in the book that you particularly loved or even, or didn't like, you know, I don't know. Well, um, yeah, there were there were several that were the writing was really beautiful and um uh hmm, how about you? Were there ones that you wanted to go to? Well, I thought uh, he that he handled I mean, it was uh, you know, there's I was about to say he handled it was a little too obvious, but it's really not. Like it it doesn't quite meet that inevitable but surprising but the the relationship with the love triangle 
you know, oh, yeah. free That's going. Very, I mean, you kind really of see that. important to mention. It is. You see it coming. But right. it's just, it's also handled nicely. It's, it's like you see it coming in a nice way. You know, you're like, you're kind of looking forward to it. Or at least that's what I found. Right. But I mean, you know, when he's first talking about Mikway and she, he's talking about a born again Indian, you know, and actually you hear that phrase all the time um, when people are re- rediscovering their heritage, you know, it's meant as an insult, you know, a big one. Yeah. But, I... um, yeah, but he, uh, uh, he, he, he really, that's one of the great achievements for him in this novel, you know, to get over that and look at it from the eyes of a, you know, a more compassionate and understanding person. You're absolutely right. I, I, you know, I don't think I really would have vocalized that, uh, but that is a huge thing Mm -hmm. uh, of him Mm -hmm. coming around and his opinion of that character. And Mm -hmm. honestly, as someone who's reconnecting with the tribe, that (laughs) makes me feel good that he did. Oh, Um, totally. Totally. Yes. But yeah, that was a really great choice. Yeah. Nick Way, he doesn't have to stutter when he sees him. He's not, you know, afraid of his, uh, that sense of being not good enough or something that he must have been feeling at the time. Yeah. And that was not um, telegraphed to me that I did not necessarily see that coming. But yeah. I, I loved it when it happened. Yeah, me too. And, and it, it happened when uh, he was seeing uh, McWay in that garb, you know, his, his uh, genuine garb that from right. the uncle. And that description of that um, garb and the meaning of each piece of it was really, really gorgeous. Um, and it, it makes you realize that these aren't just costumes, you know, that um, people were wearing, that they're, um, they're, they're a whole history, in a way, of the person. This one where he's talking about, it's just a simple scene. There's no, it, it could be out of the novel, it didn't have to be in here at all, really. But it's page 102 and 103. They have... Um, Dennis and he are both um, back together. They're on the the land that they're trying to save. Uh, Dennis is out looking for clues about, you know, what they might have to look out for. And he's a runner, so he's he's out just exercising. Um, let's see. Here we go. My legs were carrying me up a slope where I would have a clear view of the rising sun. I guess that I was doing seven-minute miles, three in a row so far. Not that bad, though before my knee was crushed, I used to be able to do a dozen miles in five minutes or less. I wasn't clocking myself with a stopwatch, but I knew my own pace better than the high school and college track coaches whose angry or despairing faces matched their voices when they would ask yet again, why a boy with God-given natural talent like mine didn't care enough to want to win. The answer was easy. It was because I loved to run, just run, not beat anyone else at it. When you run for yourself, it doesn't matter how it doesn't matter how fast another runner goes. I wasn't built the way a classical long-distance runner is supposed to be built. 
I had too much upper body muscle and bulk, yet no one could ever leave me in the dust, whether it was a mile or a marathon. Marathon. I was always within reach of the winner. I just never felt justified in sprinting ahead and taking the leader's heart. For breaking the, taking the leader's heart. Sorry, sorry, I'm messing this up. No, you're not. Uh, anyway, uh, for a trophy in some green pieces of paper, but big deal. There should be more at stake than that. Like your life? <laughs> Did I just think that? And, and that's typical again of him. Or no. had those words drifted in from some other place? For just a moment, both my nose and my mind scented something as strong and sudden as the decaying body of an animal left by the road. And it made me stumble as, that, as if I'd stepped into a hole. I stopped, rubbing my knee that had started aching again as suddenly as if someone had fired a dart into it. The smell of death had vanished, but I'd been left with a lingering feeling of imbalance and anger. I rubbed my eyes with my palms, trying to wipe away what felt like thin strands of a spider's web across my face. I began to run again, faster now, ignoring the pain, willing it to burn away. My arms were pumping oxygen into my lungs. My head was lifted up to the sky in the new day. I was awake and alive and angry, and a song was coming to me, a war song Tom taught me. It filled my mind as I ran, and I felt those spiderwebs wisps blow away like mist touched by the sun's warm rays. I reached the top of the ridge, my arms held over my head. My heart was pounding like a powwow drum. I was drenched with sweat and gasping for breath and fully alive. Yeah, and that's so much a of the, wonderful passage. Yeah, I mean, so much of the book is about running and chasing and being chased, and here is just running for the pure and sheer glory of it, even when we get these little hints of danger, you know. <clears throat> right, and yeah, and the running for the love of it and the love for being alive, and almost like a right. modern type of counting coup. That's yep, you know. <laughs> Totally. I think he could win, but he's not. He doesn't need to. Uh, I love, we, we don't see him. I think, you know, he's passed away. But the, the Tom Nicola character, his, you know, mentor figure, the man who taught him, you know, hunting, taught him taught him the ways, basically, you know. Yeah. Um, I love that character being being there and seeing him a little bit in flashback and also the relationship with the other, with Mikway. Uh, yeah, I think that I thought that rivalry and that coming together was 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 beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, in the way he's just he sort of just immediately knows how to be around them, you know, and to make it easy for them that to make them aware that you know, okay, that's all in the past, and yeah, everything's good. Yeah, I really liked this book. I really appreciate you introducing me to it. Well, <laughs> thank you. I hoped you didn't. I was thinking you might hate me because it, I, I found it. I mean, it's just so loaded with stuff, you know, that it's. Um, I didn't find it an easy read at all. <laughs> well, I think I think that I, I think I, I did, except for in that way I, I spoke of earlier. But I think one of the reasons I did was because I did not 
read it as closely and carefully as I'm going to later this summer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really examining the choices of, okay, why that epigraph for this section, this chapter, then why that story for right now? What is, what is he really trying to say? Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause it is a little, it's a little deceiving novel in a way in that, or it's deceptive because it's, while it is, sections are beautiful, it's not, it's not like the language is difficult, you know, mm-hmm. to, to, to follow or figure out or let you have to, you know, this is not a book where you have to have your, you know, dictionary next to you. Exactly. You right. Right. Or yeah. But it yeah, works it, on those other levels that you were talking about that, that do mm-hmm. demand a, a closer read and more thought and more time taken during reading it, I think. Well, they, they are offered there. I, I, I don't think he, it's just, that's what I mean by generous. You know, it's this there for you or not. It's just like, and he says in the preface, I'm perfectly happy. You know, I mean, I, I want this to be entertaining. This is, you know, just the way that the uh, um, Cray books are. They're, they're entertaining and fun to read. You learn a little bit, but <clears throat> nothing like this. Right. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, Gladys, I have, I have taken up an enormous amount of your time. <laughs> It's so much fun. I don't think of it as being <laughs> of you being so so generous with it. Uh, are, is there anything else you want to say about the novel or about your work no, in progress? I think I, or about I think nope. I just you know say give it a chance. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt, I would I would highly recommend this to uh, to other people as well. Well, Gladys, then I am going to thank you for uh, introducing me to Chanu. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it and thank you for your time. And I enjoyed uh, talking with you and also reading your work. And this was just real fun for me. So thank you. Well, thank you. It's just been a real pleasure. It's a joy to talk to you. Well, let's do it again soon. Okay. The deal. Hey everyone. Thank you so much for listening. I know that was a long one. And I will uh, definitely be doing a little more user-friendly episodes in the future and getting them to a more manageable size. But I didn't want to cut off any of our conversation. I really love being able to talk to Gladys in that way. And I appreciate those of you who hung in there. I hope you learned something about uh, her poetry and about Joseph Prusak's novel, Chanu, and that uh, you will give both of them a try. Thanks a lot for listening. Until we meet again. Dana Dagohoi.